Your senses are currently being assaulted by March Madmen, the podcast conceived to crown the greatest haunted house movie of all time. We are deep into the Sinister 16, almost at the end, actually, and tonight we are going to determine the winner of another supernatural grudge match. We've got a movie set in a middle-class neighborhood in Argentina, facing off against a film set in a middle-class neighborhood in Los Angeles, but way back in 1967. It's gurgling drains and deadly liquor cabinets squaring off against planchettes and sadistic Nazi doctors. Terrified faces Ouija, origin of evil. Should be fun. I'm excited to get into it. Of course, I am John Evans, joined as always by my two superstar co-hosts, screenwriter Vikram Wheat, a well-known name in the horror genre, I would say, and that's, that's <laughs> and newly minted Emmy nominee television producer Rich Eckersley. Rich. Woo! Congrats, buddy. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling good. We got a little bit of a celebration here going on over at my house. Uh, I it's bet. Exciting. Um, I, yeah, I did officially get a nomination today. I was co-executive producer on a Netflix series uh, called Kevin Hart, Don't Fuck This Up. And we are officially nominated for Outstanding Unstructured reality program and if you want to know what an unstructured reality program is versus a structured reality program you're just going to have to ask the academy of television arts and sciences they make those kind of calls i just make the shows but uh yeah a little bummed i'm not gonna be able to be at the ceremony this year but i will be there in spirit and in name so i'm pumped man well, by the time this episode drops, we, we may already know whether you won or lost, but uh, congratulations. Um, that's fucking cool, man, and you deserve it. And Vic, do you have any um, anything to chime in here other than, like, where's my fucking Emmy? Rich, I always knew. I've known you for years, and I always knew that your Emmy would involve profanity. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know how. I didn't know where it was going to fit in. I thought maybe your acceptance speech would just be a, a, a litany of inappropriate language. But I'm glad that my prophecy has come true. And uh, I'm, I'm super excited for you, man. And I'm really bummed that you don't get to go to the actual uh, uh, ceremony this year. But I'm sure this is the first of many. So I did get to go once before for a series I was involved in, but not nominated. And the highlight was uh, that I peed in a urinal next to Ryan Murphy. So, you know, if that's the high water mark, maybe I'm okay with, with missing out on it. But still an honor to be nominated. Well, you could have had your own little American horror story right there in the bathroom. Well, Vic, uh, I know you haven't been nominated for anything lately, which is a tragedy but uh, and a travesty, uh, but uh, how the hell are you? <laughs> John, I'm, I'm well. I'm excited tonight because I have essentially ceded my office to my therapist wife, 
And so what I found when I came in to do the podcast tonight was a, a, a quilt in my chair. So I'm sitting in my chair with a quilt on my lap like an elderly woman in a wheelchair. And it's, it's actually quite nice. And I can see why it appeals to Lynn Shea so much. Oh my God! Are you? You're really like you're you're in the the quilt club now. Is that I'm in the where quilt we're at? Club. I've got I've got my cup of tea. Yeah, he's got a purple hat and a red jacket. <laughs> he's got a brunch dated Red Lobster on Sunday. <laughs> Good I'm gonna Lord. Put, I'm going to get my knitting needles out of the way so that I have full access to my elderly computer. I don't know. I don't have anything. But so, Vic, do, do you at least have some gin? Do I at least have some who? Gin. Jim? Gin. Gin is the drink gin. of old ladies all around the world, buddy. Come on. I didn't. I didn't know that, John. What have you been doing with old ladies that you're so comfortable with that? You know what? It's okay. We don't have arsenic to- and old lace, man. Just watch the movie. I don't know. Wow, that's a <laughs> deep cut. Is Vic is more like a sherry guy? <laughs> <laughs> Port. Rich, you know me so well. Uh, um, no, as 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 truth would have it, I am actually drinking a uh, New Belgium triple, which is which is a delightful drink, and I am ready to dive into these fantastic movies. Rich, what are you drinking? Uh, you know me. The first first half of the show, I'm on sparkling water. I started drinking a little bit earlier in the day today as a as a bit of a toast. So um, um, you better have. I'm going to start easy, but don't worry. I will transition when we make the move to movie number two. You have my word. <laughs> I think you're kind of famous for hitting the whiskey at midnight, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that does happen from time to time. Uh, usually I don't remember my last few comments of the evening. <laughs> I think you're not alone in that one. But uh, let's make our first few comments of the evening. Without further ado... Let's get it on. I think we should start with the higher seed tonight. Um, in our tournament, of course, we, we seeded the films a la March Madness, uh, the NCAA basketball tournament, and Terrified is number five in the entire field of 32. And so uh, Ouija, of course, Origin of Evil, is number 12. It is the underdog tonight. Why don't we start talking about Terrified, guys? And this is a movie um, that I fucking love, and I think it's something that's only growing in my esteem and affection as time goes on. It's known in um, Argentina as Atorados, but uh, here we call it Terrified. And as is customary in this round, we start with a highlight sequence. Uh, Rich, what's your highlight sequence in terrified let me start out by saying when we reviewed this movie the first time as we did it in the the initial seating i had not actually finished the movie so i i finished it since uh and actually watched it a, a second time since then i also really like this movie it's a movie of of very simple and very well thought out pleasures there's a bunch of gems in this movie um you know, and I just want to like throw out a few, like the the image of the of the child back from the grave, frozen at the dining room table, the bubble in the kitchen drain, breathing in the opening sequence. Like, there's all these like little moments that that make this film with these unconventional, you know, tiny detailed scares. And 
My favorite moment is a pretty straightforward scare. It does take place towards the end of the film. So I'm hoping I'm not jumping into to John Evans' like demilitarized zone of, <laughs> of, uh, of the third act here. But um, it's deep into the night of the ghost hunters. And just to kind of reset the scene a little bit, you know, we've, we've met these three ghost hunters or paranormal investigators throughout the course of the movie. They've set up shop in the three homes that are being haunted in this neighborhood by malevolent spirits of, of different kinds. And just about everyone at this point we think is, is dead, except for the police chief. Um, his former lover comes back. She's the mother of the dead child. She scorns him for reburying her child. He asks her to get her to the hospital and she takes him back to the car and he wordlessly backs away when he finds the exhumed corpse of the child in her back seat because things have just gotten that fucked up in this film at this point. He then makes his way to his car and we get this unusually quiet profile shot of him staring out the car as we see a figure emerge from deep in the darkness of an alleyway. And it's hard to make out but there's no mistaking it's approaching his car window and fast. And when it arrives, we're treated to an effect scare of like what I think is the, like the highest order. It's the mangled body of one of the ghost hunters, her torso bent over backward, her head upside down, banging on the car window. And as he speeds off in terror, she screams, I believe this may not be verbatim, but she screams something effective. They're torturing us. They're torturing us. To me, like, this is just a moment of, like, bravo, unfettered horror directing. It's not a cat scare because, like, you literally see it coming from down the street. You have enough time to brace yourself. You're still terrified by its arrival. And even when it's over, you're not even sure what you saw. But that last line, too, like, it's torturing us. It reminds me of the zombie in Return of the Living Dead that says, the brains make the pain stop. Mm. So these aren't just victims. They're like, just like a body count. These are suffering souls who like their anguish just lives on creating more pain even after we avert our eyes. It's just, it's cool. Oh fuck. Yeah, it is. I mean, we're going to have our version of the Sheffies as we called it with the, the Halloween series. And when we did Friday the 13th shit, Vic, what'd we call it? <laughs> the machetes, the machetes, the machete awards. Yes. So when it comes time to do our, um, the greatest hits of all of these films. Like it would be this, this sequence will be hard pressed to lose. So I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned it. It's, it's staggering. If I have to be a little bit of a rules Nazi here and you know, I, I, I have to admit my standards are pretty absurd in that. I think the ending of these movies begins after plot point two so I was expecting to talk about all of this like at the end of our discussion. Um, so it'll be interesting to hear what you say, Rich, about the ending when we talk about the ending. But yeah, dear God, this is definitely a highlight sequence of the movie. And uh, I'll leave it there for now. But uh, Vic, what's your reaction to this? John, I just want to say, I, I think we've passed a point where you can, you can jovially call yourself a something Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think you're probably right about that. Yeah, I think I think we have to put that one to bed. So uh, we'll we'll work on finding a new term for it. But I'm glad I'm glad that you are a strict <laughs> adherent to the rules. We do need that on this podcast. 
<laughs> maybe <laughs> I was just thinking about the uh, the uh, the Nazi doctor in Ouija Origin of Evil. So yeah, um, yes, there's going to be a lot of Nazi talk here about actual <laughs> Nazis. Let's leave the yeah. Let's leave it to that. And, and by so, the way, John, I I fully appreciate your uh, your adherence to this policy, and I I try to respect it as much as I can. Sometimes there's just a moment that is so good in the ending of the film that you don't want to see it get washed away with all of the other details that end the film and you want to just spend a moment highlighting it so i'm trying to respect it i do but sometimes it deserves it absolutely and i'm really glad because like i did not plan to get into that moment in as loving of detail as you did but it fucking deserves it so thank you for that I make no attempt to adhere to the rules. John, I, I actively <laughs> try to antagonize you by violating the rules. Well, that's way. because that's you are a son of a bitch. That's true. I'm a, I'm a terrible human being. But I, I agree, actually. And, Rich, uh, when I watched this movie again for, for this podcast, I rewound that moment two or three times to, just to try and take it in. Like you said, you see it coming – and you're still terrified by it. The totality of it is still it, – it just – it twists your mind in a weird way. And you're right that what she says, you could – she says something that you can still help us. They're torturing us. And it, 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 so it feels both like this, this cry of we've, we've achieved a fate worse than death. Yes. But, and, but you can't go. <laughs> you need to stay. <laughs> and there's something there's something to be said for that. I think across the genre as a whole that when you're talking about slasher films, when you're talking about most of the most of the films that we've talked about, there is this sense that death is the worst thing that can happen to you. Your goal is to survive this and if you don't you die, but when you die, at least you're dead. And right. then your suffering is over. This is one of the rare movies where your death results in something far worse than actually being dead, or at least your your capture, your whatever. And I love that. I mean, that really embraces the Lovecraftian elements of this movie, which I think are some of the strongest elements in it. Yeah, to be sort of enslaved by whatever evil phenomena is going on here and to become a you know you're not even a zombie i mean you're still as that character albrecht you know seems to be aware of the situation but at the same time she's been horribly transformed if not perverted into into you know a plaything of this utterly mysterious and malevolent force that is definitely one of the more terrifying antagonists, you know, taken as a whole, the, the, the evil going on in this film is, is by far top five antagonist forces. I mean, if we're looking at The Shining and Session 9 and, you know, maybe you guys have your own um, thoughts about that, but in the Haunted House bracket the, in the tournament that we're doing, I mean, this is, th- this could end up being crowned the scariest evil in the whole fucking thing. It, it's in contention, let's put it that way. I wouldn't argue with that. I also think we could we could play a fun drinking game with how many times we say some iteration of terrified while we're recording this. I was trying not to, but it just it just look. It, it's kind of a generic title, but at the same time, there there isn't a movie with this title yet. So you know, props to them. Indeed, there you go. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you brought up the, the Lovecraft thing. I, I actually hadn't really pieced that uh, together or made that connection quite the way that you did there. Uh, the, the first thing that came to mind with this particular creature was Cronenberg, but I, I don't feel like it's really – this is actually not really a Cronenberg creation. It, like you appreciate the fact that it's a, it's a mutated – body that's been that is still that, that's still functional and communicating despite the fact that it's been reworked in a way that you don't recognize but it also passes it goes past this world too much for a Cronenberg creature it doesn't have any videotapes being inserted into its orifices you don't know that Vic Blockbuster is still in business in Argentina (laughs) I think there's a deleted scene where the guy that comes out from under the bed and into the cabinet and whatnot he's clearly got a VHS tape sticking out of his butt so come on it's there just have to watch the deleted scenes which I hope there's going to be a Blu-ray a special edition uh, apparently there's one coming out, but I don't know, it doesn't look like, like I'm waiting for somebody is going to do the full blown special edition of this movie. And I'm going to buy that at any price because I am truly fascinated by this film. So my highlight sequence is I'm going to go with the open because I think this is the strongest, scariest, most holy fuck opening sequence in the entire tournament. And it stands out in the haunted house genre, even the horror genre as a whole, at least in the last 25 years, because there are, I mean, yeah, even, even though there's at least three scenes in this movie that deserve serious consideration, this open is so amazing because let me just set the stage briefly. You talked about the gurgling drain there, Rich, we build it around this couple, married couple, Clara and Juan, Clara and Juan, in their home. And talk about dread. We've got this ominous mystery of the drain of a sink. And the It movies and the Stephen King novel had something with the drain and a sink, but this is far more subtle. We know the woman's sanity is starting to fry and we uh, fray and fry. And we just, we just started, uh, we just met her. But it's a throwaway moment as she goes into the bathroom. And immediately, Juan, her husband, starts hearing thumps against the wall. And we go through this whole process of him yelling at the neighbor, whom we will soon meet, about him remodeling at 5 a.m. And Juan goes out onto the street and we establish that this other house is next door. There's a creepy intercom. It's all good. It's all slowly ramping up. When he returns, he realizes the sound is actually not coming from next door. It's coming from the bathroom wall. So then he goes and he opens the door and he is confronted with one of the most ghastly sights that a husband can ever imagine. His wife's corpse is being levitated from one side of the shower to the other in a slow but inexorable repetition. Her head is smashed into the wall over and over. Sometimes it's her ruined face. Sometimes it's the back of her head. But there's blood everywhere, and she's clearly dead. So Juan tries to pull her down. You know, he's even maybe stopped this damage being inflicted again and again, but he can't. 
when we share in his panic and his horror and his agony and his grief and his frustration that becomes defeat and devastation. It's an amazing sequence that sets the table for the movie that follows. And while maybe it also is setting a bar that is too high to reach again realistically, and honestly I would say that the rest of the movie never quite gets there for me, this sequence introduces a world that is so incredibly harsh and disturbing. Like, it tells you you are watching this horror movie, and I am just so blown away and, and scared and disturbed by that that it's one of the more magnificent opening sequences that I can think of. It just, it's, it tells you that nothing is safe and you are going to be incredibly freaked out and unsettled and disturbed and disgusted. And this is like, this is a, not a movie for kids. This is not PG 13 folks. This is not gonna, you know, like the, the little teeny boppers that love Ouija movies are, would be shitting their pants watching this. And that's kind of, you know, that's my jam. That's what I look for in, in horror movies, movies that actually freak me the fuck out. Like this is I, last comment before I hand off the baton again, um, whenever I'm watching this movie, I, I, I forbid my wife. I'm like, Kim, do not come out. Do not get water. Do not get a snack. I do not want to risk you seeing anything of this movie. And there's a couple of movies in our field that I've actually watched with her, but I do not want my wife to watch this movie because it's just, it's too much for her. And I don't even want her to see a second of it. And I think, you know, that's kind of what I'm looking for in this genre. Vic, over to you. John, I concur with your assessment insofar as my kids can see our television from their bedroom, as I think I've mentioned before. And I was watching this very late at night. And I think probably far too long into the movie did I suddenly go, oh, shit, I should make sure the kids are asleep because I really don't want them to see any of this. Although I was also fairly confident I would have heard some sort of shriek of terror <laughs> if they had seen any of what was transpiring on the screen. It is a really, really effective opening. Hell Yeah. Uh, Rich, did you consider uh, mentioning the opening for your highlight sequence? I did. I mean, like I said, I kind of threw. I didn't mean to step on you, but like I kind of threw in that that little bit that's the, the the opening shot with the the breathing in the sink. I thought that was an ingenious touch, taking it all the way to the the moment that you're talking about. I agree with you about the impact that it has, and just to keep the family theme running for this particular review. I actually, I did watch this with my wife who I've mentioned before and is a pretty, you know, she's seen a lot of these horror films. She watched, she's willing to watch just about anything with me. And she's generally a pretty jaded viewer. And I think this movie across the board had her squirming and, you know, pleading like, no, no, like more than any other movie I can in recent memory. And I think it is a testament to the fact that this movie and this scene sets the, the tone it is a true horror film, especially in this 
particular subgenre. I think this is one of the most horrific, most ghoulish and driven by darkness and otherworldly creatures and the unknown and what truly is in the darkness underneath your bed, literally. This movie is really just rolling and thriving in that dark space. And yeah, I think this is a pretty cold, no holds bar open. I'd say the one thing that that it loses a little points for are that the effects of this particular sequence are not great. They're they're good and the concept is effective enough that I give it a pass for that. Plus I'm I'm going to venture to say that this is probably on the this film was on the lower budget side of things. But the way that her, her body moves back and forth is, a, is just a, t- a tiny bit clunky, and so that maybe takes away some of the, the realism. But what I do like about it in particular, and what stood out to me, and I, you know, I'm pretty sure this is just echoing your sentiments, is the absolute brutality of it. It goes on much longer than you think it's going to. And yeah, I guarantee yeah. you if this film gets an American remake, as mm-hmm. I think you were alluding that it, it might, I'd be willing to bet if they do recreate the sequence, it is not as long. It does not have as many hits. It does not feel as helpless and relentless as it does here. Well, that was my first thought. Like when you were saying that about like, well, the effects, A, I was thinking, well, I didn't think that. And maybe that's technically true. But my first thought was, you know, if they remake this, I can almost bet you money that it will not be as effective in the American version, even if technically speaking, the effects are more convincing because they simply won't have the the brutality of it. And they, yeah, they won't have it go on as long and it just won't have the same, you know, sorry for the pun impact. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and there, and look, there, there are times where that sort of, we're getting a reaction from the audience in that way can feel, um, like it's like it's exploiting people's reactions a little bit or where it's just, you know, where the violence can feel gratuitous. I mean, like I'm certainly not beyond calling violence gratuitous in a film if it feels unjustified, but for some reason in this film, especially with where the movie goes, it feels perfectly in line with everything else that's happening in this world. It doesn't feel like they're just doing it for, for shock value. It feels like it's, as, as you point out, it's setting up, exactly the experience that we're going to be witnessing. It makes for an interesting parallel with uh, our second film, Ouija Origin of Evil, insofar as it involves two characters who wind up in an insane asylum. And Mm -hmm. I feel perfectly comfortable with with both of those characters being there. (laughs) All right. Well, Vic, what's your highlight sequence? I am going to John. I anticipated that you were going to pick that sequence, and that is that is maybe superior. Although uh, there there are elements to Walter's encounter with the 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 thing, the entity, whatever it is that oh, yeah. wants this movie, that I really like. And yeah. so I would I would pick the entirety of Walter's encounter with it. Uh, on the whole, but I will specifically highlight his final encounter with it when he's desperately trying to get, I assume it's Dr. Albrecht, right? Yeah, That's it is. He's trying to contact. So he's trying to contact Dr. Albrecht and she keeps saying, 
they don't have any appointments. It's a very cryptic scene that 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 the woman, the 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 person, the receptionist or assistant that he's talking to says, "How how did you get this number?" Which I I just find adds a an air of mystery around her and everything around it. It's it's very effective. I'm not I'm not saying that she's, in a negative way. She's kind of dodging him. She is, but it's bizarre because he is someone who is clearly experiencing something. He might sound insane on the phone, so I guess it's a little hard to tell. But she says, "Look, without any without any proof, we're not going to we're not going to help you." And so he determines to get proof, and he gets a camera, and he sets it up. And what follows is just this really terrifying sequence of him sets up the camera. He lays down, and just I mean, it's it's watch just watching this guy like lay down and kind of close his eyes. He still you could still feel the tension in him and in the room of like. I'm so exhausted. I don't have anything to do except close my eyes. He keeps saying, I haven't slept in days. And as soon as he does it, the bed moves and there's, there's all this bizarre stuff. The camera gets knocked over. He reviews the footage. He sees the, this person come out of the clearly bizarre, deformed, kind of bizarre person climb out from under the bed and then disappear into the closet. And so then he opens up the closet and looks around in there and doesn't see anything. It turns around and now he's watching the footage. And then we see the closet doors open again, which sets up what I think is one of the most effective elements of this movie, which is the idea that see, you can see things from one angle and they appear one way and you see them from another angle and they appear another. And so it is that there is this, this other reality superseded upon ours and and the way that they execute that not just here but over and over and over again is really effective they the what they do with the camera to make it plain what's happening it, it just it just works and so the last the last time we see walter is really fantastic it's a great it's just a great scene one hundred percent. I mean, for me, there were three scenes that I was agonizing over that deserved serious consideration, and this is one of them because it's a movie built around top-notch scare sequences. And what I wrote was Carbajal, Walter Carbajal, uh, reviewing his video footage with the skinny man going into and out of the armoire, as I called it, on the on the camera um, and in real life. The timing and the staging in that sequence is just amazing. So it's 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 fantastic and a more than worthy sequence to highlight. And I do want to say, as a sort of a honorable mention, uh, a different kind of sequence, but so memorable when we introduce the footprints and the handprints, and finally that kid's corpse at the kitchen table, which I think Rich uh, mentioned the sustained dread and fascination as the two guys try to make sense of it and the corpse knocks over the glass of milk while they're not looking at it. Oh God. I mean, it's just, it is a fantastic set piece in its own way. Just to, to chime in really quick on Walter's scene. I mean, look, if you, on paper, this scene is not special and that's what makes it really remarkable to me. This is a scene about a guy who, 
like all logic says, well, why is he still spending the night in this house? Um, who's being haunted by a, a monster under the bed. And the monster under the bed is, get this, a tall, naked, lanky man with a vacant stare. I mean, we've seen that in, I mean, hell, you basically see that in Ouija too. You certainly see that in like the pact. Um, this is not an unfamiliar image, but something about the execution of it and all the little choices really makes this stand out as being very unique and indelible. It's a very tough thing to put your finger on, but I, I really was struck the second time I watched it because the first time I was bothered by that pretty basic story question of why is this guy who's being tortured by these, by these, this demon still, going home and spending the night there when he knows what's going to happen. And I do think the way that they set up his environment and the way that they establish him as a character and just the way that he talks and how isolated he feels, how dirty and dingy his, his unit seems, you generally get the feeling that he just has no other options without ever coming out and telling you that. And that, increases the believability of it and you really start to feel and sympathize with the poor son of a bitch you when do. He goes that final night and you're like he knows exactly what he's getting into like he knows he is fucked and that it's going to get it's going to get bad and yet all he can do is just videotape it so that someone believes him and helps him it's a very sympathetic portrait of someone who's just suffering this living night terror his per- um, yeah, his per- his performance is wonderful. It really is. Yeah, but this like this somehow like you have different chords in your brain. You know, you have this sort of bullshit detector, and then you have like other things that that just sort of you know strike chords with what real life is actually like. Where yeah, in a perfect world, the guy would just say, "Fuck this shit, I'm moving to Florida," you know. But like we actually kind of know. That part of life, part of humanity is I will – we are adaptable. We will ride out a storm. And if we don't really have other choices, we just we just are like, I'll deal with it. I will deal with it. And I will, I will figure out the best way, the, you know, the, the way that makes the most sense with the options I have to, 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 to deal with it, this problem, whether it's tarantulas or – you know, wasps or ghosts, you know, like your, I guess tarantulas generally aren't a problem, but you know, whatever, like I'm just saying, you know, like whatever people are coping with in life, like where our first instinct is to write it out. And that's a fact. Like it isn't, I'll just book a suite at the Hilton. That's not an option for most people. Like who, you know, who knows what his, his rent situation is or his lease or, you know, his family situation And and like, for me, like I just bought it. I bought that, like, you know, whether it's his own mental and and his sanity failing or whatever, he was like, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get help, but I'm going to, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to survive it. And I honestly think that applies to a lot of people in different situations. I mean, fucking Katrina, for example, uh, a lot of people, just for like, no, I'm not leaving. I will, I will survive this. So, um, it's, yeah, it totally worked for me. 
and I loved it. So, yeah. Well, and even with him, like just, just little stuff, like the, the shot, which is always the same shot where he's trying to call the doctor day after day, he's sitting at a smaller desk with mm-hmm. a, sophisticated computer than the people around him and it's clearly a pretty lousy office to begin with and he's drinking coffee from from styrofoam cups that are too small he's got 12 of them stacked in front of him (laughs) just know that this guy is is some poor mail clerk in a bad insurance office in some you know town in argentina like he probably just doesn't have a, a ton of options well, um, I kind of struggled coming up with the low light sequence because uh, this movie's pretty awesome. But uh, I was actively looking for something that didn't feel entirely great. And I, I will say that I observed a scene where Albrecht and uh, Yano, Jano, Yano, Yano, um, are talking uh, around the middle of, of the, the movie. And um, Yano gives a couple of anecdotes where in his work with uh with Thunes as a he's working as a forensic uh specialist and he encountered bodies that uh suddenly evidenced life long after their death had been confirmed in in the morgue and it's not that these stories are worthless but they don't really move the needle in a movie as scary as this you know, the whole thing is not exactly giving the USS Indianapolis monologue in Jaws a run for its money. It's it's a movie where the subtitle translation isn't always impressive. I really kind of find it hard to believe that the wording is as awkward in Spanish as sometimes it is in the subtitles. So I think perhaps some subtleties of mood and atmosphere might be lost there. But the scene kind of stands out a little as being ordinary in an otherwise awesome movie. John, I actually disagree with that. I quite like this scene. The one thing that I find this movie is lacking is character development. And this is – Yano is one of our really main characters. And this is one of the few scenes of character development – that actually relates to the movie. And I understand that the the individual stories themselves are not directly related to this, but they explain why this person that we're supposed to be invested in and rooting for him to not die is so invested in finding out what's going on in this place and what's happening to these people. I thought uh, – let's see. I'm going to make sure I get this right. Norberto Gonzalo, I thought his performance was terrific across the board in this movie. A lot of the performances were very good, but I actually enjoyed this scene. I liked the little downtime and that, that was not just sort of differentiating it from some of the character development scenes with the ghost hunters in Poltergeist, for instance. I don't know. This scene felt like it was still maintaining a base level of tension. We were still dealing with stuff that was, unsettling and weird and uncomfortable, but also really gave me a sense of who this guy was that totally connected with all of his conversations with Albrecht about how he'd been to her lectures and had been following her and why he was so starstruck when he, when he saw her there. So I I did not dislike this scene. I actually think this added a bit of depth that this movie needed. Well, you're dead wrong, Vic. 
No, just kidding. No, no. I mean, look, those are excellent points. I, I think I was just flailing around for a low light sequence. I mean, I think that that absolutely. It's not like if if they did a director's cut, they should cut that shit. I'm just like looking for something that didn't totally hit at, at the same level of effectiveness as everything else. Uh, Rich, what are your thoughts? I mean, look, uh, hearing Vic's like defense of it, I, I'm a little ambivalent towards it because the the one thing that I absolutely agree with you on, Vic, is, and this is my big problem with the movie, honestly is that the movie has a near borderline non-existent uh, um, establishment of character. And even the, the, the story itself is story is not what this, what this film is trying to do. This thing is, is really a haunted house show. And there are some nice details that are dropped about the ghost hunters here and there. I know that that Funes has his, you know, his, has his bit with the, uh, the the relationship he had with Alicia and his like his his heart troubles or or whatever that I still have issues with, but um overall I do feel like this movie is very concerned about the scares in a way that's effective, but it's not very concerned with story or meaning or subtext or anything of that nature, and that hmm. does make it fall a little bit short to me. But that said, I I still thought the scene was pretty dull. <laughs> <laughs> but but here's but here's the thing. Here's the 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 other defense I will give to it is I really enjoyed the way that their banter was very much like colleagues. It wasn't people who were horrified. They weren't over the top. They were very matter of fact about it. And I I, I love the 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 moment that actually leads you into that conversation where they're outside and and Jano is trying to convince Albrecht to come into the house. And he's like, oh, yeah, you should come over and see this. Like, it's, I forget what the exact word he says, but he, he, he says, says something to the fact of, like, it's interesting. It's really interesting. Like, it, it, it feels like, uh, like a coroner at a crime scene saying, <laughs> like, like, oh, yeah, like, you've got to see the size of the hole in this guy's head. Like, it just, it's very uh, analytical. These are people who have seen this kind of thing a million times before. And that actually comes across in the way that they talk to each other. So I like that element, but I did both times watching this movie. I, I wanted to nod off a little bit when they sat down at the table and, and started chatting back and forth. Well, I want to hear your low light sequences, but I will say in response to what, what Rich just said that I don't see this movie and say, you know, I really wish there was like a, a classical Hollywood character arc for someone or, you know, I really wish we, 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 we got into like why, uh, Funes is like so motivated to solve this case or, you know, like any, any classical, like there's not enough character in this movie. I think this movie is absolutely perfect. Like I don't want to, I, I like movies that, that dispense with some of that stuff. And, I, you know, yeah, you could add 10 to 20 minutes to this movie. Would it add some depth or shadings to characters from potentially thematic resonance? Yeah, p- potentially. Or it could just kind of be sort of bullshit at the same time. Like, I'm not sure it's worth the trouble of trying to do that stuff unless you're going to do something that's really powerful. So I, I don't feel there's a lacking there personally, 
But Rich, go ahead and respond to that, and or if you haven't given your low light sequence, roll into that. You know, I don't need a full on the ring style explanation for every haunting, but I could have done with just a tiny bit of exploration as to what was happening. Mm -hmm. Even if the answer is just that, you know, like it's a passage to hell, (laughs) you know, like I would like gone for just about like, just give, just give me a little something like what, what the hell is going on in this neighborhood? Like we'd never even get close to trying to explain it. Like why Um, here? Why now? Yeah. Why here? Why now? What's going on? Like you you just get, you don't get nothing. It's just a bunch of stuff that happens, but great stuff. My Lone Light, I'm with you. It's a it's a movie of a lot of great scenes. I had a hard time picking out one that really bothered me. I was looking for one that exemplified the lack of story, and I kind of came up a little bit short. So the one that I latched onto is uh, the beginning of the the big night, so to speak, where the where the paranormal investigators set up shop in three respective homes. So you have these you have these three. Uh, stories that are intercut all of a sudden where, where Albrecht, Jono, and Rosenthal, I think is how you say his name, are divided up into three separate homes. And in those three storylines that you're following, you have one truly scary scene, which is which is Rosenthal and Funes in the, the kitchen investigating this haunting that seems to be happening in, in a kitchen cabinet. It's, it's horrific. It's, it's painful to watch. It's bloody. It's scary. It's, it's great. But then it's being intercut with these two other scenes, which have nothing happening in them, especially uh, the scene with Albrecht and her setting up all of her silly ghost hunting gear that doesn't seem to do anything. And it's doing nothing for the ghost hunt. I mean, did she really need that like that like 30 pound compass to tell her that the disturbance was coming from a giant gaping crack in the wall of the house? And then, like, all she can do when she goes over to investigate it is point inside of it with a flashlight. Like, what the hell was that about? That she spent 15 minutes setting up all these gadgets and doodads to detect paranormal activity? I mean, it just seemed like something that was seen in other ghost movies and felt like we had to trot out here. Interesting. Yeah, that didn't really cross my mind. But I can't defend it, you know, vociferously. Vic? I agree. It didn't jump out at me, but now that you've mentioned it, Rich, that that, that does seem like a a valid point. I think the the first thing we get to that really where the what's happening with Rosentox starts to cross over into the other houses is Yano seeing the the there's something in the window and he can see it from one side, but then when he crosses the window pane he can't see it. That's when it all of a sudden it seems to be happening around him. But you're right; it is. It's an it's a really intense scene in one house, and the other two houses are just eerie and unsettling, but not as as aggressive, I guess. Well, I mean, they 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 fit a fair bit of exposition. Some of it's sort of mumbo jumbo in that in that portion of the movie. So maybe that's part of it. Is that sort of the pace slows with, I mean, I think you could say that the movie's trying to, to provide some of that why now, why here, you know, in the discussion of alternate realities and all of that, and that's all we're going to get. So it does have its value from, from that standpoint. And, you know, I would just say, you know, I've probably said this before and I'll say it again. This is the movie that I most look, look forward to giving our thorough but loving autopsy to because I, I really believe 
going through this movie with a microscope is going to be joy, not pain. So uh, we'll see. I'll, I'll say for, for tonight's duo in general, I really had the thought that in terms of pairings, I think watching these two, and I, and I watched them pretty much back to back, was the most enjoyable pair of rewatchings uh, we've had so far. Like I found these both, both of these movies were very uh, interesting and enjoyable to, to sit through another time and, and explore. I know that you don't feel quite as, as well about we to two, but um, no, no, I, I, I was going to say that, man. I, I honestly, I watched them literally back to back and I had a great time. Really enjoyed watching these two movies back to back. Okay. Well, uh, Vic, what's your low light? My low light is really the scene when Alicia returns to the house after uh, Funes has had his his heart attack or he thinks he's having a heart attack. And he sort of opens his eyes and Alicia's there and he's like, take me to the hospital. And she's like, I, I know what you did. I saw it. I saw video of it. You you reburied my son. And and then she just sort of leaves him there. And it leads to what I think is maybe the coolest scene where he goes to get in the car and the dead kid is in the car. I love that bit. It's such a it's like yeah, it's it's one of the scenes that really reminds me of uh, in the mouth of madness, but well I'll get into that when we talk about the ending. But just it, it, We've talked about this in, when we when we talked about this movie initially. There's a lot of backstory around Funes that doesn't seem to connect to the story at all. And this is one of those things where he has a relationship with this woman. It has no bearing on the story. Her return to the house has no bearing on the story. Her eventual suicide has no bearing on the story. And so I, I, it just feels super tangential. Her performance is not great. It's, I mean, it's fine. It's not like she's bad, but it's just not, it's not great. We didn't really get a sense of her for, from where she was at the beginning. We only see her as a distraught, near insane mother who becomes a more distraught, clearly insane mother who's done something sort of clearly insane. And I just, that whole interaction when he wakes up and she's there really just highlighted how extraneous all of this stuff was. And I, I I really don't understand why they, why they had this in the movie, except that they needed something. They needed some kind of coat hanger to try and put these characters on as they're going through these terrifying things, the terrifying things are terrifying. That's two drinks folks. If you're playing at home, (laughs) (laughs) but it just doesn't work. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't, it doesn't really make the characters any deeper. It doesn't deepen the tragedy. It doesn't deepen the scares. And yeah, it just didn't work for me. Well, look, I mean, I think this is a a movie that is dealing in shorthand with things that the Hollywood version would have put in the foreground and like, yeah, you can't have this movie with it being completely devoid of characters. So the way this movie uh, approaches it is just to kind of give you 
you know, very scanty glimpses of the backstory between Funyas and Alicia, for example. And, you know, I'm not going to lie, as much as I like that and I hate sort of the Hollywood impulse to make everything about the fucking character backstories and the arc and all that shit. Like if you hired me to do the American remake of this movie, I think I would seize on to things like Funes and Alicia as being, you know, something that, that is valuable as something that we could explore and develop and that could give us more emotional resonance to the story if we were to expand upon it. Because I, I actually think Funes is an amazing character. I love this guy. And I think that, like, much of him is is sort of just implied. It's not actually on the screen. And I think that you could, you could run with that. And I think that if you could somehow sort of maintain his individuality as a character while delving into him deeper, I think that could be, that could be profitable. That could actually add levels to the movie. So that would be one of the ways to improve upon this in a remake. I'll say that in, in my way of agreeing with your low light sequence. Well, thank you. Uh, I, it pains me to say that, but because <laughs> <laughs> I do, I, I understand like this movie is really, I credit it for this, but it's remarkably unconcerned with shit of that nature. Uh, but for audiences, American audiences, certainly, um, it's, it's strange how kind of scant and fleeting the relationships are. And yeah, characters like Alicia are, you know, weirdly peripheral um, when, yes, an American movie would have tried to milk that. And for better or for worse, and maybe if you did a ham-handed job, it, it would suck. But, I mean, I think that in the in sophisticated hands, subtle hands, like you, Vic, um, like this, this, this could have actually heightened the creepiness and the unsettlingness and the sort of tragedy of, of the film. I agree. And I, what I would just point out, I know I've compared this film to Juwan before, but I think that what Juwan does is really skip over those parts where, where this movie might, I don't want to say fail where this movie might be improved is it has in the beginning, these temporal juxtapositions where the stories are being told out of order and we're getting some of them flashback and some of them in real time. And that sort of keeps you on your toes. And that's really what Juwan substitutes for character is we're not going to give you a lot of character development, but in each sequence, you're going to have, you're going to have to, to pay attention and stay on your toes to figure out where you are in the story. And this movie does that for the first half, but once the investigators arrive, they sort of throw that out the window and we get a very straightforward narrative telling of what happens. Now, the scares are on point for all of that, but by losing that that narrative trickery, that, that temporal trickery, mm-hmm. you're then forced to, to fill some of that time with something. 
And I feel like what they filled it, you know, what they filled it with feels like filler. You know, there are very few reviews and essays about this film because I, I did try to Google it and read stuff. And, you know, that, that makes me wonder. Uh, it's actually less than 10,000 reviews on IMDb, which is staggering. Uh, I think this movie is right now currently deeply, deeply underrated, I guess, you know, by those metrics. But one of the reviews I read was like making a big deal out of the fact that, yeah, there's like this sort of convoluted, which is, I guess, sort of a traditionally – uh, Mexican films of the last 20 years did a lot of temporal sort of Tarantino-esque playing around with um, timelines and whatnot, Amoros Peros, stuff like that. And this movie, Argentinian film, you know, it has some elements of that, and then it abruptly drops it and suddenly we're moving forward in a linear fashion. Now, that didn't bother me. It sounds like, Vic, you know, maybe that was to its detriment in, in your eyes, but it, it it is interesting that this movie is extremely sort of challenging uh, to the viewer early on, and then it, it it kind of just says, okay, and now you're caught up, and we're going to do this, um, you know, in a straightforward way. But by my uh, sense of it, that's that's Act Three. It's only for Act Three, and you, we've been talking about Act Three all night because you guys keep discussing it, whereas I would have said. You know, that's the end. That's that's we're about to talk about the end of the movie. And while it's a larger chunk of this movie than a lot of films, I think this is an extremely long act three. It's an extended act three. Um, I, I, I don't mind that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, John. Did I antagonize you with my low light? Is that what I did? You're always antagonizing me. Vic. <laughs> <laughs> no, wait, I'm I, but seriously. Are you saying that you feel like Act Three begins when the investigators enter each of the houses? One hundred percent. I do. I do. Like I don't know how you call that anything else. Like to me, that's an extended third act, but that's very clearly plot point two. Okay. I'll even if I as so I'll give you that, but that means that you excluded Rich and I from picking highlights and lowlights from the second half of the movie. Which doesn't seem fair. It's not half. Like, I honestly, I don't have the running time. But, like, maybe it's 30 minutes of an 80-minute movie, which, yeah, that's disproportionate. But it's... I'm pretty sure it's almost exactly the halfway point. I think it's, like, at 45 minutes in. Yeah, I mean, it would be really interesting, and I guess we'll have the opportunity to do so, to actually look at running time stuff. But structurally... That that clearly is when Act Three begins, when the researchers st- set up shop in the three different houses. Don't I mean, be too presumptuous, John, about <laughs> whether or not we get another chance to look at this. I'm just saying, there's a there's a lot of show left. Uh, yeah, that's true, Vic. It's not a movie that adheres to. I mean, John, I think that's what you really hit on. It's not a movie that adheres to Sid Field's screenplay, and that's kind of what makes it cool. You know, it, I mean, it, but it, that would classically, I mean, that is a, that is a Sid Field turn. Like the, whether it goes on like 10 minutes too long or not is another conversation. But I mean, I think that's a very classical Sid Field kind of an act three. I, I have a good way we can explore this. John, why don't you take us beat by beat through the last 50 minutes of this film? <laughs> you know, Rich, I was tempted to do that. And I realized that if, if, if there, you know, if there's any justice in the world, I don't have to. 
And so I'm not going to. Like, I, I won't walk us through the entire third act, but I will say it's loaded with scares of all kinds. The characters are active. They're trying to do things, but it's not overly frenetic or what I call tedious suspense, especially after the first or second viewing. You know what I mean? I'm talking about, like, scenes where it seems like it's really tense, but when you sort of have a feeling of the outcome, it's it's just kind of boring. You're like, oh, okay, we got to go through, yeah, a lot of people hiding in cupboards and in crawl spaces and, you know. The, the, this movie, it's always escalating. I always yeah. that. Even on the second viewing, I remember, like, you know, every time someone walks into a room and is trying to figure out, like, what's happening to the other person in that room – even though I had a memory of it, I was still a little, I felt a little bit in the dark of like, like, how does this unfold? Like, how does this thing overtake them? Because it always is doing it in clever and novel ways that you don't see coming. I love that. I, I think there's some, there's a genius to that. And I don't know if it's always intentional. Sometimes it might be accidental, but I think you've, you've hit on something there, Rich. And I think there are some films where, like once you've seen it once or twice, God knows three times, you're like, we're just going through motions because I know the two or three actual turns, the actual events, the actual quote unquote surprises, the actual kills or whatever it might be. And then you're just like a lot of stuff is just dressing it up. And this movie, like it defies that. Like I have yet to feel like uh, I'm going to be somewhat, bored watching it again um and it's 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 like something we could have an entire podcast about trying to define but i think this is an extremely eventful third act it ends a lot of the characters stories often fatally but there's something for everyone here and as for the final final resolution i don't think it gives me too much or too little uh it's appropriately open-ended yet satisfying so uh, I, I also want to touch on, like, in specifically, I think the way that it gets Yano is, is great. Yeah. Love, love the staging of that with the where he's on the phone and he's describing it sort of, you know, when he moves between the panes of glass and the window and it sort of appears and disappears. And then obviously it, it, it off, off camera, it, fires through the window and drives glass into his eyes. And it's just like, it's, it's fucking scary. And I really like the scene that uh, Rich touched on earlier um, where Funyas has given up and he's kind of pulled what I would call in Monty Python terms of brave, brave Sir Robin. And he's gotten out of Dodge and he's in his car and his clueless colleague is on the radio with him, but he's back in the neighborhood and he's kind of confused and he's torn between Funya's urging him to get the hell out of there and seeing Yano who is dead and Funya's is yelling into the radio, telling him to get out of there, to get out of there. Um, I just think like this act three has so many different types of scenes that are just play and it doesn't matter how many times you've seen the movie. They're just like classic scenes of tension and suspense and horror 
it's loaded. It's absolutely loaded. I, I love act three of this movie. I love the ending. So that's what I'm going to say for now. I won't get into greater detail than that. Vic, go ahead. Thank God you're not getting into greater detail than that. Oh, fuck remember, you very much. Remember this the next time we talk about Below, okay, John? <laughs> Dear God, we have to talk about Below again? <laughs> and again and again. It's the winner, John. Just get on board. Uh, no, I, so I want to jump back to something you said because I, I agree that the third act of this movie is very strong. But you said that we have characters that are very active and that are that are doing things, and what I'm struck by is there's a a vague sense in which that's true. There's a very specific point at which Rosenstock is on the phone with uh, Albrecht and says, "It's it's here. It's real. This is it. This is the thing. I don't know what to do." And she says, "Just document as much as possible." <laughs> Yeah. And that's really what we're witnessing is Albrecht and and uh, Rosenstock, not even really Janos because Yano because he's dead before he gets to document anything. So it doesn't really- this get back to Walter in the sense that this is the more realistic thing? I mean, did like the, the fake Hollywood thing would be like, and we'll reverse the polarity and we'll close the portal and like does do you really need that? Maybe, but the the real world thing and what you what you would see in most horror films is we got to get the fuck out of here. Well, or at least you're yeah, at least you have a a actual goal of some kind. I mean, I, to your point, Vic, yeah, active is maybe a strong term. I actually feel like, you know, this is all along the lines of what you're saying, but all of the, the investigators really just kind of disappear. They, they befall these yeah. terrible fates, but like as characters, they just cease to exist. Well, Funes um, is the, it is the hero quote unquote. Right. Sure. I mean, yeah. Yes. And yes. he he has a somewhat traditional through line, doesn't he? Except that yeah. the the bulk of the third act is him running around and calling the different people, telling them that he's leaving. Yeah, but that maybe quote unquote is his arc, right? Because he's totally passive and resistant, and but we get to the point where he's going to burn the houses down. So that's sort of um, an A to Z uh, progression from him where he's not – he's resistant to doing anything. But ultimately he gets to the point where he has nothing to lose and he goes back and, and he's determined to do something. I mean John, I'll give you that. But that still means that he spends the bulk of the second half of the movie, which is the bulk of his appearance in it, not doing anything. And that that fights against the active characters actively doing something. I don't know. I'm, I'm a little surprised that you guys are giving me this kind of pushback because, like, I, I really don't watch this movie and think, oh, I wish it was what I would call more conventional in these regards. You're like one of people that's like so – you're so in love with someone, John, that you can't see their, their biggest flaws. Yeah, and so fair. I'm – happy for you. I'm glad that you guys are having a lovely honeymoon. But yeah, it's got some issues down at the back end. Are you talking about my wife's butt? (laughs) (laughs) 
Vic, I am pretty much in in your camp. I don't. I actually enjoyed the 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 end the, the quote unquote ending of this film more this time than I than I did last time. And it has so many highlights, more of which I I you know could mention. I love I love uh, I love Yano in the entertainment cabinet. I love the entire reveal of the <laughs> the the different points of view will reveal. Uh, the creatures from other dimensions. I know that this movie didn't invent that concept, but I do think it executes it really well. Um, so many great scares that lead you all up to what I think is this very flat and nonsensical closing scene. We go back to Juan, who's the the husband of the the man of the the husband of the wife who was thrown against the shower walls in the opening scene of the film. And this time he's being approached by investigators who are trying to figure out what what happened out there. And there's this sort of prolonged scare where where Juan is staring behind them and he sees a ghost who they don't see, which itself doesn't make any sense based on the the, the point of view uh, explanation that we received earlier. Like, why is it that? That he would see that he would see it and they wouldn't, and then there's a whole bit about how like it would, it's, it's Rosenthal and Rosenthal. He keeps saying like it came with you, it came with you, and like what does that mean? Like why is it? Why are we to believe that it came with him or it's following him? And then it throws a wow. chair at the camera, which also doesn't make any sense because the whole movie we've seen objects attracted to the evil, not being thrown away from the evil. It just this scene feels like it's tacked on from another film. I really felt like it was going to, you know, like the rap rock was going to kick in after the chair flew with the camera at the end. Um, it just, it just felt like it was from a, it was felt like it was a part of another film. It, it, it Blair Witch 2? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it just left me kind of cold. I felt like it wasn't true to the spirit of the rest of the movie. Well, I disagree fairly strongly, but I can't say that I, you know, that's like a totally unfair interpretation. Uh, because, yeah, like, it's it's not logically airtight, Vic. Any thoughts on this? I generally agree. It's it's not a strong. It's not bad though, is it, Vic? Come on, John. You've talked a lot about how you feel like Rich and I are wanting it to be more conventional. Yeah, but this is the most conventional, the most paranormal activity moment in the whole movie. Yeah, but it doesn't bother me because it's still it's still just another one of the things i like about horror movies of this type is that they're just they're they'll punch you in the throat they'll punch you in the crotch they'll punch you in the temple they'll punch you in the eye they'll poke you in the eye you know whatever they'll 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 yank your ear they're always like like just kind of coming at you from different angles and to me this whole ending is is just you know yeah it's not totally set up it's not totally predictable it's not airtight logically but it's not it's not it doesn't diminish the impact of anything that has come before it it's just like sort of another funhouse scare and yeah i i don't i don't question the logic of well why can't the guys in the room see the thing or well it doesn't actually throw chairs I, like uh, rich with all due respect i didn't see like like really literal rules and mythology being set up where that's inconsistent like to me kind of it's anything goes evil has a blank check 
I, I'm not I'm not looking at it as well. The evil can't do that. So why, why did you need this scene? Like, why did you need this this flimflam show at the end of the movie? Like, I mean, you could have left the movie with Funes watching that house burn down with with dead Wano. You know? Yeah. Well, one of the things I will say is that the sequel, quote unquote, uh, that I just read ten minutes before we got on the show was that the director plans to pick up from the moment of the chair flying at the camera. So, you know, maybe in some way he has a plan for that. It's not just strictly gimmickry. I don't know. John, I'm, I'm with Rich's analogy on this. Well, fuck you. you. You have fallen super in love with a crazy chick and you can't see the flaws because the sex is so good. Look, dude, you're not wrong because so many of these fucking movies have felt like I'm doing homework and having to watch them over and over. I'm not going to call it hell. Like, trust me, there are a lot worse jobs out there, even if I'm not getting paid for this. But, like, this is one of the few movies that, yeah, I'm like, my nerdy horror brain is like, I want to get high and watch this movie again. Like, that's, that's true. That is true. I John, I I will concur with that. I also would like to get high and watch this movie again. <laughs> I was high the first time I watched it, and I I think I audibly screamed at a few moments. Oh yeah, I mean I'm yeah, almost terrified I, to be high watching this movie. Yeah, I made a I made a conscious decision not to get high when I watched it the second time for basically that reason. By the way, I just said terrified. God damn it! <laughs> there you go. Everybody drink. Yes. Yes. Let's reload and then talk about Ouija Origin of Evil. All right. I am popping a podcast favorite, the Ballast Point Sculpin IPA. Kind of boring and traditional from an IPA standpoint, but, you know, it's part of our history. Earlier tonight, uncommented upon, I had a Stone Tangerine Express Hazy IPA, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. It's good. And a uh, Stone... What the... I can't read it. <laughs> it's too dim in here. Anyway... This is seventh one. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just a swirl of characters to my drunken eyes. No. Um, okay. Here we go. Buena Visa Salt and Lime Lager. Mm-hmm. We're on our second 12-pack of those. Uh, my wife got really got a hankering for them. Very drinkable. They go down very smooth and easy. So uh, what do you guys, um, how do you reload? I held on to my can just for this. Nice. Pizza Port, uh, one of my favorite mm-hmm. local breweries out here. Permanent Vacay. Now you are a pizza port guy, Rich. I think you often yeah. hit the pizza port. I really, I really dig. I really dig pizza port. They're, plus, they they send all of their exclusives to Trader Joe's, and they they change them out monthly, so that they always got something fresh. But yeah, I recommend it. Get yourself some pizza port, people, and pizza port. Please sponsor us. <laughs> just, just send us some beer. We know we're we're really cheap place. Vic will definitely blow y'all. Just just send us some beers. Jesus, John. <laughs> what? I mean, I thought that was just take, fair. Just just take the metaphor one step too far. Sorry. 
right. Uh, before before Vic, you tell us what you're drinking. I, I also I forgot to note that I also have a shot. So I have a beer and a shot, and it's the Rocks uh, Tequila um, that he came out with recently. I actually didn't bring the bottle in here, so I forget the actual name of it. But if you care, I'll tell you later. And uh, Vic, what are you drinking? I I will blow the rock for some tequila. <laughs> All right, uh, here we go. Hang on. That You're, is a Latitude Thirty Three Honey Hips. Uh, yours always sound a little more elaborate. It's not just a can. It's like they have that sort of weird European thing going on. You know what I mean? Wait, you think Europeans are weird, John? Is that is that what you're saying? You're just trying to gaslight me the whole night, aren't you? Dude, I just want you to finally own up to the fact that you hate the Scandinavian people. Apparently, I'm a Nazi who wants to eradicate all of Europe, apparently. Who, who, yeah. al- who also hates... Blonde-haired, blue-eyed Scandinavians. It's, yeah, it's a, well, you're a you're a self-hating Nazi. <laughs> kind of an equal opportunity genocidist. Well, that's a great segue to our next film. <laughs> it, it frankly is. It is. Yeah. Yes, no, it's wonderful. Yeah. Outstanding, folks. That's the kind of professionalism you come. Well, that's why Rich got nominated for a, a, an Emmy right there. That's right. You know. Yeah. Now we know. Now we know. All right, well, Ouija, Origin of Evil. Yes, we've talked about this film several times already, but let's get into a little more detail and focus on highlight sequences. I had a really hard time coming up with this. Every time I sit down to watch it, which I think I'm now on my fourth sitting, I always sit down feeling like, Ah, it's you know it feels kind of bland or whatever, and then I start to watch it, and as it goes along, it gets creepier and creepier and creepier, and then by the end, I was watching this at my dining room table with earbuds on because my kids were watching a show in the living room, and in broad daylight on my fourth watching on a laptop, I the hair was standing up on my end by the end of it. There's a lot of really good sequences in this, and I think that's why it's such a challenge to really identify one. I'm going to go with Doris's monologue about being strangled, largely because it, it stands out so much from the other parts of it. She gives a terrific performance. She's clearly been possessed by the Marcus demon character and so much of this movie is about things happening in the background which i really love and i truly noticed things this time that i that i hadn't noticed before i don't want to say that like it's like i'm I'm taking away from that aspect of it this is one of the moments in the film that plays in a very direct creepy way it doesn't leap out it doesn't you you don't come away from it going god what the hell was that it's it's almost the antithesis of the scares in terrified but there's something about those words coming out of the mouth of this little girl that the the juxtaposition is just deeply unsettling well, you're kind of stealing my thunder here, Vic, because in past shows I've said I love this monologue, 
but I'll just add to what you're saying, because I agree with you, that when she's discussing the experience of death by strangulation and how it feels in stages, it's interesting on multiple levels, because only the dead could report on this. But somehow, both in writing and the performance, she's both the victim and the killer. And somehow that works. It's great writing and great performance by what I would say is a fairly limited child actor. But this is absolutely a standout in my mind. Vic, I definitely second your your global thought here of, you know, this this isn't exactly what you said, but I do feel like every time I turn this movie on, I remember it as like something I like, but not something I like really respect or want to revisit that much. And every time I go back and watch it, I feel like I actually get a little more out of it. I think that the, the girl who plays Doris has a terrific performance across the board. This is a, a genre with a lot of like creepy kids uh, with weird friends. And she's one of the best. This scene I think is really well executed. I also love the my friend. I think that he does a, a pretty subtle and stereotypical character uh, performance, but I, he's just the right amount of like unsettled, but but also humoring her at the same time because he wants to get into her sister's pants. Agreed. Um, yeah, I love that actually. His response to this. So he has a good balance to it. The, the scene plays pretty well overall. The creepy, super creepy things coming out of a little girl's mouth makes the scene feel a little bit of a cliche to me in a way that that turns me off just a tiny bit and would keep it out of my highlight sequences but i don't mean that as any shade against the the sequence i think it's still a good pick i hear you it's kind of like you know a rapping granny it's like oh, okay yeah so the kid's <laughs> being creepy <laughs> That's, 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 you're right. That's exactly what it is. I do. Can I just throw? I want to throw an honorable mention, really at you, John, because you pointed me at this. You pointed both of us at this. None of us, I think, have ever seen the original Ouija movie, yep. and so you pointed out that this is, in fact, not just a sort of a disconnected movie, which was always what I had sort of heard when I was reading reviews and and stuff about it. But does in fact set up a lot of what goes on in that movie. Insofar as both Lena and Doris are pivotal characters, Doris is the antagonist in that movie. It takes place in the same house. They find the Ouija board. One of the characters winds up snipping the stitches that are holding Doris's mouth together. And I'm so much more impressed with this movie. Knowing that Flanagan was working within those constraints, that he had to arrive at a point where Lena was in a, a mental institution, Doris had her mouth stitched together, mom was even in this sort of benevolent spectral character, that really elevates the movie to me. I don't know, do you guys feel the same way? Absolutely. I mean, again, I haven't seen this movie and the, the first one, and, you know, I, as a completist, and a, a fan of this movie, I almost feel motivated to pay for it. I'm just reading the Wikipedia and, and reviews of the original movie. It's clear that, that great efforts were, were made by Flanagan to not, not you know necessarily pay homage to, to the mythology established in the first movie, but certainly recognizing that this was a movie made as as 
often horror movies are, for $5 million, and it grossed over $105 million. And so there was a fan base. Like, you know, there were people that, that went into Ouija Origin of Evil expecting it to connect in cool ways to the first one. And God damn it. He absolutely clearly pulled that off. And it actually does in some way heighten my appreciation of this movie to kind of know the future, uh, that what happens after this story. So I'm definitely more kind of intrigued overall by the universe that, that is being created based on this fucking board game. So yeah, it's cool. I know that every time we talk about this movie, we just talk about how, how impressive what Flanagan does overall is in his career. And also with, with this film, this is really his movie. But I've only done the crash course of what happens in the first film, which I think you guys have as well. And it's really just an impressive feat of, of screenwriting craft, I think, to create something that not only has a standalone feel the way that it does, but it also backs into an existing framework. That's an extremely difficult position to be in. And to come out of it this successful is really something impressive. So, yeah, learning more about the other movie has, has just made the experience richer for me. I'm going to highlight the scene where the priest goes through that seance with what the child claims is his dead wife. And I really like the way he navigates this, the Henry Thomas character, to outwit her and the fraudulent spirits that are posing not only as his dead wife, but as the dead loved ones of everyone else that they're ripping off um, over the last few weeks or months. He just seems like a really competent and clever character here. And it's sort of a left-handed compliment because one of my bones to pick is that building this character up the way we do in my highlight sequence, I don't feel that Act 3 really does him justice. Like, the way that he sort of goes out, while not unheroic, and he certainly wins at, at a certain pivotal juncture over the evil, I kind of expected more... It's, it's a little disappointing the way that he is puppeted. But, you know, like, I'm open to arguments on it. Maybe it's just because the evil is that powerful. I don't know. But uh, that would be my highlight sequence, other than the amazing monologue about strangulation. So I actually included part of that sequence in my, in my low light, which we can talk about later, is that... What do you feel like the point of that scene is? I mean, like, uh, the inf- so he's, he's walking into this situation and essentially attempting to outsmart the demon, right? But, but it's all to, to what end? Like, it, it's only telling us things that we already know. Well, do we for sure? Do we know that it's all an act? Do we know that the girl's incapable of reaching the priest's wife at that point? I mean, I think it's pretty clear to us at that point that she is, that she's being possessed by a demon and that she's not any kind of like psychic, that she's, that she's strictly like being the vessel for, I don't know. Well, no, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. That's true. But at the same time, we need the human characters to get wise to this. So it's, it's a definitely a positive development that they're like seeing through it, I guess would be my counter. 
And the question that's been lingering is how did the demon know the answers when uh, the, the mother says, where, where were you when she thinks she's talking to the dad? Where were you when I told you that I was pregnant with Lena? And the demon knows the answer. And but that's you know really, that. what's that? You know the answer to that, right? Yeah, it's, ex- it's explained in two different ways, mm-hmm. actually. Well, but you don't know it until that scene with the priest. Where she says it happened in this house. No, uh, where the where the where where what we gather from it is that the demon knows what, what it you're watched. Thinking. Well, okay, there's two things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, you're right. There's two ways that the demon knows. One is it can read minds. Two is that anything that happened in this house, the ghosts or slash demons were witnessing. So any personal family history uh, that took place within these walls, they will be able to draw upon. That's true, but it's also they've been they've been pulling this on other people, right? So well, the, but that's all bullshit. That's all total bullshit. Yeah, presumably. I, yeah, we 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 haven't mm-hmm. seen anything that indicates that. Well, actually, Vic, I want to really quick. I want to just state that one of the things I like about this movie is that we have the exact same scam being perpetrated by the human characters and the ghosts. Like, I don't know what to make of that. I'm not sure it's, like, hugely thematically important. But but the exact same scam is being perpetrated by the dead characters as the as the living characters. I mean, that's, that, that is a very interesting point, and I, I do think that's cool. But... For me, the most important piece of information that came from this was that the demon is able to read the the thought that is most primary in your head. And it's been using that ability to manipulate these people, and the priest was able to sniff that out in this scene. I agree. As soon as I said the thing about the strangulation, I went, shit, I should have said this scene with the priest because that's another one that I have on my list. I think it's an exceptional scene. I think Henry Thomas is exceptional in it. Yeah. The way that the performance seems sort of artificial the first time I saw it. And the more I watch it, the more I see it feels artificial because he's a character who has a guard up. Yeah. And I love Flanagan is probably telling both Henry Thomas and what's her name? You know, the female lead. Alice. Yeah, Alice is the character, Elizabeth Reeser. You guys want to rip each other's clothes off. Like, you want to fuck like monkeys, but you both have very strong reasons not to. That's why they end up in a romantic date and why they have these sort of things. And the movie doesn't overplay it, but both these characters have lost their previous loved ones, and yet they feel a strong attraction to each other. And I think it's a really interesting dynamic and one that, that, yeah, the movie does not exaggerate, but it's there. So I chose a very different scene for my highlight. It's actually sort of a, a, I guess it's a series of scenes, really. It's a, it's a segment. It starts around the time when the mother, I think she said her name was Alice and Lena, the older daughter are sitting on the, the stoop of the house and they're, Mm. they're, sort of mourning the death of the father and the scenes punctuated by Doris, the younger daughter who appears 
with a bag of money from the basement, which begins this this mystery where she explains that like daddy who's you know has passed away like told her where it was and that the father had given her the location of the money and they go on you know they use the ouija board to to try to like communicate with and what i really love about this and what i think speaks to what makes this film so compelling and also what makes it a very different film from um something like terrified is how much thought goes into the characters and the, the journey they take. Because in this series of scenes, you really get to watch Alice go from, go, to have this full like journey. She begins with this point of being almost like a, a skeptic of herself. Then she moves into a fear of what her daughter is going through and is gradually allows her to be seduced by the demonic spirit. And it ties together all of the little storylines, like the, the loss of her husband and her need for a, a personal purpose and the financial motive needed to support her family. All these like little story threads that they've been dealing along the whole way. By the end of the sequence, She's moved very realistically from this place of fear of telling her skeptical to a place where she's telling, you know, the daughter, Lena, like, I knew your father would take care of us. So she really makes a full journey from a non-believer to a believer because it satisfies all of the, the needs that she has. You know, and this moment is punctuated with, with Lena eventually, like, picking up the, the planchette which I had to work in a way to say planchette in the drinking uh, game. It's not a very horrific scene, but I really feel like these sequence of scenes is an exceptional bit of writing for the, the genre. You know, I, I feel like usually these movies are, it's like one single character who knows that the ghost is real, but then the rest of the cast is just a bunch of skeptics who, who think that they're a loon. But here you like really have these like flesh and blood characters who, who like their flaws and difficulties have been not only given time to develop, but then you get to see the evil actually exploit these weaknesses to further its grip on the family. It's a really cool like development of, of character. And one of the things that I watched for in these scenes, and, and, and those scenes specifically, Rich, was because we know that the father's spirit actually exists and does show up and play a role in the film – is there any point in any of this where she's actually communicating with her father and not with the demon? Now, the answer I've determined after watching it four times is no. But there's something exceptional about a movie that made me watch all of those scenes super close to try and identify the details and make sure that this was all actually manipulation and there wasn't a moment when there actually was a benevolent spirit mixed in with all of the other evil that she was communicating with. Well, you're, you're putting your finger on Vic. One of my biggest problems with this movie, which is the handling, the logic of the dad and how, how does he tie in to, to the whole mythology? And I don't have a satisfactory answer for that. And I don't think there is one. It's not coherent for me. And when we talk about the ending, that's going to be, I, I finally isolated. Like I think last time I railed about the wrong thing. I bitched about the wrong part. Actually what makes the ending not work. were not, was not the very ending. It was 
the things that invalidate that ending. So, and that, that has to do with, is the dad really here? What, how does he fit into this as a ghost? There's just generally sort of a, a muddle here with, with that. And it's kind of cheap and it's not, there's not a real logic here. I don't think, I don't, I don't think it's like, Oh, well, if it's, it's really subtle, but if you really, you know, figure it out, it, it totally makes sense. No, I, I don't think that's the case. That's, that's my opinion. I disagree on two counts. I mean, one, like the, the, the broad version of my disagreement is that I feel like everything in this movie is pretty carefully calculated and I am willing just to go out on a, on a limb and, and believe that there is a, an intent and a set of rules here that's being followed. We I'm going to, I'm about to tear that the fuck apart when we get to ending. <laughs> all right, well, well, we can dive into that when we get into the ending, but I, I do feel like they do go through some, I, I, I'm a, I will agree with you that it is somewhat hazy, but I also think that it is purposefully vague when it wants to be to allow those uh, those those leaps in plot. And mm-hmm. I, but I don't know. Well, let's let's get into it when we actually break down the ending of it because I think it's worth discussing. So sure, sure. Uh, but I mean, I think this is sort of a Mike Flanagan failing overall, like just sort of philosophically. Is he wants to be really scary. But I want to reassure everybody that their dad and their mom and their sister are going to be there to hug them when they die. And it's, it's, it, it's kind of cheap and bullshit, you know, honestly, I think. But, okay. It's not the orphanage. No, God, it's not as bad as the orphanage, no. <laughs> Fuck you guys. <laughs> Sorry. Uh-huh. I, love, I love the orphanage, and I appreciate the emotional component of this as well. Well, we don't have to relitigate the orphanage. No, but let's talk about the fucking orphanage. <laughs> let's talk about the orphanage. Okay. Uh, no. Okay. So <laughs> maybe, maybe you know, when we do our wrap up pod, we'll do we'll do five minutes on the orphanage. How about that? You better okay. set, you better set an egg timer, motherfucker, because I will go over five minutes. Fair enough. Fair enough. That sounds like it's not below. <laughs> So low light sequence. All right, I'll I'll kick this one off. For me, it's definitely uh, the scene, and we've traded some texts about this today, where Flanagan feels the need, for reasons unknown, to go back to the haunted house well of cliches and shoehorn into his movie. This sleeping girl gets her sheets tugged off of her beat. There's no relevance to this movie. It, it's totally disconnected from any mythology that he establishes. Is there a sillier and more pointless and juvenile trope in all of haunted house movies to, to repeat than girls in bed getting their sheets pulled off of them? Like, I don't, I don't get the impulse as a filmmaker to force that. I just, it's, it's like the ghost as a bratty eight year old brother trope. I actually, I would really would love to see a fresh and cool take on this that made it scary. And as you guys know, I'm going to actually try to write it myself. But I would think that Mike Flanagan might make some effort to actually make this beat his own. But he doesn't. It's totally ordinary and pedestrian. So for me, that's an easy low light. I disagree, John. Well, you're a son of a bitch. Boom! <laughs> disagree. What stands out for me in this scene is this. I agree 100% that 
The sheet's being pulled down. She pulls it up. The sheet's being pulled down. She pulls it up. The sheets get pulled all the way off the bed. Doris, stop it. You know, and then she stands up. She sits up and she, she looks around. It's weird because the sheets are on the bed. And Doris clearly isn't there. And this has been juxtaposed with Doris being downstairs. I can't remember exactly what Doris is doing uh, if this is when she's right before she gets possessed. I think it's right after she started to communicate with the demon. She pulls the sheet, the, the blanket up. And as she lays down, you see the red eyes and the demon standing in the doorway behind her. And so I actually find that this is a misdirection. This looks like a traditional scene of sheets being pulled down like we've seen in multiple paranormal activity movies and everything else. But that what he's doing is pulling your attention one way only to unsettle you with something going on in the background, which is a, a, a classic Flanagan trick executed i actually think very well here okay i i don't remember seeing the glowing red eyes but watch it again watch it again this is one of those ones that i noticed today i watched it three times uh like i did the 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 uh terrified scene when the woman comes to the door watch it again it's really subtly and very well executed i mean i have no doubt that it's that it's creepy like just the way you're explaining it knowing how he handles that kind of stuff it's it sounds great on paper but i i think I, i'm john i'm still with you on this one i this was the first scene i wrote down um as a low light um it's not the one i ultimately went with but like i i threw it on here along with the scene where lena's mouth uh, something gets sewn up in the mirror for some reason the sewing up of the mouth is one of those connective tissues, no pun intended, to, to the first film. So I, actually, I do kind of appreciate that a little bit more, knowing that the lip sewing was one of the things that they're trying to tip the cap to and maintain continuity with. Yeah, I, I understand that to be true. Although I believe that that's a connection to, to Doris getting her mouth sewn up, not the dream sequence where Lena... Um, imagines her mouth being uh, sealed together. But, um, well, this movie is trying to explain the origin of, of the lip sealing. Okay, that's that's fine. Mm. Well, one of the things that, that that bugged me about it is just just from a, from a plotting perspective, I didn't understand why the demon is is just like trolling Lena. Like it's it's trying to seduce the mom. It's possessing the the youngest daughter. And the middle daughter, like, it's it's just messing with her and trying to, like, terrorize her, even though later on it says that she's, you know, the, the best vessel. Um, and so I didn't really understand what the motivation there was, and I certainly don't understand the motivation for, for the ghost, as, as you're pointing out, basically, or the demon, coming in and basically, like, pranking her in this scene. And even the way that it's shot, like, I don't know, I, I, it could just be me reading into it, but, like, I always feel like this these, this type of scene and also just, like, the way that this one's shot, like, has a weird sort of, like, psycho-sexual component to it. And I don't know where that's coming from either because there's no place where that's ever implicated anywhere else in the film either. I think it's really interesting that you just put your finger on something that, that we should acknowledge, the sort of demon versus ghost. And most of these movies really, you know, firmly delineate that. As far as we know, we're just dealing with ghosts in this movie, right? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, all the spirit of people who were human and yeah. in, a, in a past. Which is, is just malevolent. 
Yeah, which is kind of notable on two levels. One being that demons tend to be the nastiest, and we don't we're not playing that card. But this movie actually kind of goes out of its way to potentially justify that these ghosts have a sufficient backstory to be as nasty as demons. So uh, I think gonna say as nasty as they want to be. But well, that's probably true as well, if you want to get into dated references. <laughs> the show does not shy away from dated references. No, we do not. Uh, Vic, you're on mute. I'm aware. <laughs> Nothing I'm to sorry, say? I'm sorry, did, did, you, did you want me to make a dated reference? I would, I would I, like I'm pretty to, sure I can come up with one. Vic, what have you got? Vic, what would Two Live Crew say about this movie? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, I was actually I was searching to see if I could find an image of the demon in the background of the uh, oh. uh, of that scene, but I couldn't I couldn't find a still. Well, I, I hope you find it. I mean, in the sense that that didn't make a big impression on me, so I believe you. But um, that's not that wasn't like um, it didn't move the needle for me. This viewing, it it really moved the needle for me on that scene. I really went, oh, shit, that's what he's doing. It really felt like a misdirection. But why, Vic? What is it doing? We are 10 minutes away from Doris whispering into Lena's ear and beginning the process of possessing her. So I I think that's setting up the demon's interest in her. I think demon is a not inaccurate description of it. In the strictest sense, this is a, a ghost but what defines ghosts in haunted house films is that they want something. That's what what is uh, – just to bring up below again because I can. What Zach Galifianakis says, what does the malediction want? It wants satisfaction. That's not really what they want. There's a, there's a terrific scene towards the end where the, the demon says it wants a voice, which is fine, but it's not terribly defined. It's not like it wants justice for its murder. It wants to sing. It wants to sing, baby. Gotta dance! Yeah. I really think that while the antagonists in this movie are traditionally ghosts in terms of their their explanation, these are literally ghosts that have gone insane. And that comes from what, what Henry Thomas describes of people that have had their tongues cut out and their vocal cords severed and have been stuffed in a dark room and thus have lost their minds. And so there's something in them that I do feel like they seek pain. They seek suffering. They call it voice, but the voice comes from taking something from someone else that there's nothing you can give them that will satisfy them. And so that, I feel like, makes them a, a, a terrifying antagonist in a way that, say, the ghost in the changeling or, you know, the, the ghost in below were not. I agree. I, do really like, I, I don't know if this is what you're alluding to, but I do really like the, the moment where the, the mother is trying to negotiate with the with the demon and is like, leave my daughters alone and, and take me. And the, and the response is, we'll take all of you. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's weird. I mean, the movie sort of suggests that it's not the German Nazi doctor 
guy that we're dealing with, it's actually the victims who are, yeah, those are our antagonists. I don't think that was as clear to me until I saw it this time, but I, I agree that that's what is going on. That's that's always like very disturbing when yeah, just people their their suffering reaches a level that it, it warps them and it, it makes them evil in some way. Well, it's, it's justifiable. To, Doris uses the plural "we" several times when she's yeah. referring to it, and that I feel like that's specifically what they're sort of talking about. Well, you do get a real sense in terms of who is uh, possessing her that it's it's definitely more than one entity because it's a, a, a she and then it's a he and yeah there's the Marcus and then there's the you know the one that enables her to do cursive and you, you definitely get the sense that she's inhabited by various spirits throughout this whole Indeed. thing. Okay, well, that's a good jumping off point for me to, to get into my low light. And I had a hard time identifying a real uh, low light for this film because I do feel like it is pretty, pretty consistent and thoughtful. I know, John, you had concerns about the final act, but we all know that we never speak about the final act. That's um, right. Don't talk about it until we talk about the ending. <laughs> um, so, so hopefully this isn't part of the final act. I don't know. I never know anymore. Stick to the first 30 minutes. Terrified is thrown off everyone's sense of what the final act actually is. <laughs> yeah, it, it has to happen before the opening title. Yes. Um, I was a little bit thrown off by Henry Thomas's, uh, the scene where he comes in as the, as the priest and, and gives the, the false prophet uh, reading with, with Doris. But I, I don't really have a problem with it because I agree that there is some explanation there. I also made the note, and John, you hit on this earlier, that it made me mad because I felt like we'd spent a lot of time investing in this character, and it turned out that he's a red shirt yeah. uh, wearing a white collar. The scene that really just kind of stunk to me was the the absolute dump truck of exposition that he lays on us in a movie that, that's been so subtle so far, like he, he takes Lena and the, and the mom upstairs following a session with Doris. He kind of like breaks down like beat by beat how he tried to tried to outsmart her. And then he delves into this, this lengthy story that comes from finding a, a translator for the diary entry that, that the demon made, which I don't understand what the demon is, is writing in a diary anyways or why it's writing diary entries through Doris and like to what end. I mean, I know that the demons talk about later that they want a voice, which is at least consistent, but like in a movie that thrives on character building and, and some pretty artful plotting of details, like this scene feels like a pretty clunky transition that really like transforms the movie from what has essentially been like a, a character study of this family Kind of falling apart a little bit into this pretty prolonged third act that is essentially its own standalone plot, which I mean, which isn't bad. It's not like the second half of the movie is a bad movie. It is just a, a different movie. And this transition point to me is one of the weak points where you can kind of see the seam straining a little bit as this prequel tries to buoy all of its ideas within the framework of what is, in fact, a franchise that, that needs to fit into a broader storyline. I think that's really fair. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that one of the big failings of this movie is that it's actually less than the sum of its parts. You, you can't, it's really hard to look at this and say, oh, God, what a clever, diabolical, 
mythology, what a vision here. It is just playing fast and loose. We're going to give you scares, and we're going to hit the beats at the right time. We're going to give you some implication of something deeper than what you're immediately getting, but it doesn't hold up to much scrutiny. This is not it follows here in terms of like brilliant conceptual stuff. It's just sort of pay no attention to what I'm doing with my left hand. Like look at my right hand kind of stuff. Like it's a, it's a show. It's a show. I, I agree with that, but I would definitely not call this fast and loose. I, I mean, like I, I know that you already said you disagree with this a little bit. Like, I feel like this is pretty fastidious plotting at a certain point. It's trying to stitch two stories together. To me, this, this is almost like he had a great idea for another movie that was its own thing. And someone offered him this project and he was like, yeah, sure. I, I can figure out a way to like dovetail that story into this story and, uh, and make them work together. And for the most part, he does. But there's a there's a point where you can tell that it's it's two different concepts stitched together. But I also think that each concept in its own right, you know, both that the the plot of the doctor and the haunting that's happening in the house, and the the plot that's about the this family of charlatans being haunted. It's it's two sort of independent stories. That I think both have they're plotting pretty well figured out. It's just that there's a there's a moment where the two have to meet and. It, this is the place where it's most apparent to me, but I wouldn't call it fast and loose. This is another scene that I watched several times. Look at that scene and tell me if there's a figure behind Henry Thomas <laughs> when he's explaining this. You guys think I'm an asshole, but I'm telling you, it was just balls the whole movie. Yeah, but right. If, if you've seen the shit that they put up about Haunting of Hill House, this is Flanagan's signature. Yeah. He does interesting things with the background of these scenes that makes them, even if you don't notice it, even if your conscious mind isn't absorbing it, I think it makes them um, uh, unsettling. Like I kept rewinding it, being like, wait, is that a – there's something moving back there. That's really weird. Look, it's I, fine for a PG-13 movie, sure. <laughs> Falling back on Nazi doctors is sort of a, a lazy storytelling you think? thing. Yes, I know that he didn't make up the three rules for operating a, a yeah. Ouija board. Or don't be alone. Don't be in a graveyard. And always say goodbye, right? Yeah, yeah. We see Doris operated alone. We see that nobody ever says goodbye. And when we realize that the house is filled with bodies, they've been doing it on top of a graveyard the whole time, which is something that Lena actually points out yeah. when they do it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Like, it's pretty cool that he pulls all that shit together in this movie. By itself, that scene doesn't necessarily work. But in the context of the whole and juxtaposed with Doris dragging the boyfriend down to the cellar and I find the scene of what Doris is doing in the background as she explains to the boyfriend what else is in there and he pulls he's pulling out all the other stuff and we're starting to realize what's actually in this other room. It's one of those things that didn't work great the first time I watched it and I feel like has worked better in all of my subsequent viewings. 
this is not a sloppy movie. Like, I, I didn't want to be misinterpreted in terms of, like, oh, this doesn't, you know, this is all thrown together. No. By normal uh, standards, this is a really carefully put-together mythology. There's something about putting together what is obviously a leaky linchpin of a scene in the middle of this movie, or the, the, as the second plot point of this movie, with the juxtaposition of what's happening underneath, you know, as as Doris is talking to him, which is, I think, in a standalone sense, a very scary scene, combined with what they're illuminating about the mythology of the Ouija board itself in a movie called Ouija, Origin of Evil. And then if you throw in this weird shit that, that I genuinely believe is going on behind henry thomas that all makes it work a little bit better it feels like flanagan knew this was the weak point of the movie and was trying to find ways to prop it up a little bit and i feel like he actually succeeded in that okay yeah and and assuming you're right i mean look it's perfectly logical i mean even lena comes in and and sort of points out that like the, the house has always been watching them and that that means it's hearing everything they're saying right now. So it, it totally stands to reason that there is a presence in the room, as you're saying. So it's like there, there's also a motivation behind that. It wouldn't just be like, you know, like, like scary stuff. I'm willing to concede it, but this, the scene on its own, like, has problems. So that's why it's a low light. I, I would love to give this movie a ton of credit for, you know, everything being airtight and disturbing once you really sink your teeth into the mysteries, but I, I can't. I can't give it that kind of credit. It is basically a lounge act, like, uh, of a movie. It, it's, it's, it's basically doing card tricks, but, but still, it does card tricks well. They're fundamentally different movies, and so, like, we're, we're judging them based on their goals to some extent. Mm-hmm. So, like, you're kind of argue, you're kind of offering, like, the counter-argument that we had for Terrified. Am in I? Terrified, in Terrified, well, in ter- yeah, in Terrified, it was, it was you, you don't have to worry about, like, the rules being airtight because it never really established any to begin with. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're right, absolutely. But that movie is for grown-ups, where it's like, you don't need rules, you don't need mythology, we're just going to fuck you up, we're going to scare the shit out of you. Whereas this movie is, you know, sort of trying to be a conventional, safe Hollywood narrative, and it, it will subvert that to some degree. But one of the things that I just think these movies are in different weight classes is that Terrified is a movie for hardcore horror aficionados and this movie is for i just read like on wikipedia that uh 75 percent of the first ouija uh movies audience was under 25 and 61 percent were female i didn't see that on wikipedia i didn't maybe get the data for for this movie but i would imagine it's in line with that and that's totally fine i'm not judging that but they kind of know the demographic that they're going for, and that's it's a different situation. And yet here we are, three middle-aged men who have just spent 90 minutes talking about it and still have a half hour to go. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. But let's let, let's talk about the ending of, Wait, of this I, movie John, for kids. John, I, I, this is going to kill you, but I haven't given my low light yet. God damn it, Vic. How is that possible? How is that I possible? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how that's possible. <laughs> okay. I will keep this short and sweet because my low light, I, a lot has to do with the ending, and I don't want to anger 
any Nazis uh, as regards <laughs> endings of movies. But I will say that early on we get a scene when Doris is looking at herself in the mirror through the planchette. We get our first visual image of Marcus, the the, the ghost that is our, our primary antagonist. It is uninspiring. Uh, it is it, the, yeah. the ghost design itself is not very interesting. I feel like there was some thought to the latter stages of mouths being sewn together and that sort of thing, but it mostly looks like CGI crap. And I, I really thought they could have done a better job with that. Wow. Talking about the, Fair. the the like the first big reveal, like the one where it's like you see the monster full on and it like bends her backwards and everything. That's the one. Oh, I really like that. Well, fuck you. <laughs> I, I thought it was effective. You know, we, we talked about this when we did the, the first round on it, so I'll be super brief. All of the effects in this movie are are things I've seen in a in a dozen other movies. Like the big mouth, wide eyes effects is is such a cliche. It's pretty much. I mean, it's it's literally a Snapchat filter because it's just a cliched. It immediately makes me think of grave account, grave encounters. Um, grave encounters. The movie that will come back in a round where we bring films that were neglected. <laughs> um, but somehow, like I feel like it's it's I feel like it's effective and well executed here in a way that I can't I can't quite place why it works, but it does. Anyways, I, I found that monster. I agree that it borders on on CGI, but I found its appearance relatively shocking. I found its its eyes and its face to be a, a pretty scary image. I agree it's a little bit on the generic side. And I also think the the way that they handle the girl's like body and like the, the bending over backwards while it seems a little silly and obviously it's something you've seen in like exorcism movies before. It wasn't one of those things that felt so prolonged to me that I started to feel uh, unsettled by it. So I found it to be a, an effective little scare, but albeit one of the scares that would play well for you know late teenage girls who came to see this movie at a you know an amc uh in a previous universe where movie theaters were sold misses i what are these movie theaters that you speak of yeah (laughs) (laughs) don't worry about it john no no one is going to remember i agree that the girl bending backwards was really effective i just thought I if it had been the man with fire on his face from Insidious, which did not make it this far in this competition, it would have been more impressive than this. And yeah. the fact that that same image comes back to play in the climax, which I'm still not allowed to talk about, John. You're not. Um, you're not. Wait. Wait. Thirty uh, seconds. Wait. But but the fact that it, that that image comes back into play in what really needs to be the scariest fucking moment in the movie kind of hurts. Hmm. No. Okay. I mean, that, that, that's fair, but if it, if it had been the man with fire on his face, you'd be like, fuck, that was scary, but it wasn't. Instead, it was like Keanu Reeves from the matrix when the, when the liquid metal is making his lips come together. <laughs> the Marcus Marcus character is the non-factor in this movie. Can't we? We can agree on that, right? I mean, like it's the, the visualization is a non-character, but the actual character I think is is quite well rendered and and quite as, scary. As yeah, it's channeled by Doris, right? Yeah. And and the essays that he wrote 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but, but his diary. I think it's time to talk about the ending, shall we? I don't know. I don't know, John. It's only midnight. Can we talk about something else for another thirty minutes? Let's let's kill time. So. <laughs> and, and now for some filler, folks. I moved over to the bar and I'm pouring whiskey. Yay! That's what I love about Rich. Like once the midnight hour kicks in, he's pouring whiskey. That's a beautiful thing. I'm, I'm unable to pour whiskey, and it makes me sad. Vic, we can call a timeout if you want to pour whiskey. Maybe. No, it's probably better if I Yeah, yeah, yeah me too. If he doesn't have access to it, so he's got the shakes. <laughs> <laughs> like Nicolas Cage in Leaving Las Vegas. All we need is Elizabeth's shoe right now, but uh, unfortunately... I mean, that's, all, that's all any of us need. Yeah. That's 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 a fact, <laughs> but she's not in the room right now. <laughs> Have you watched The Boys? Yes. Oh yeah. God, I fucking love that. That's Did amazing. you like it? Yeah, me too. Let's talk about the ending. All right. This film, uh, much like our last show, where I kind of came to terms with the disappointing ending of Below, I wasn't quite as annoyed watching this a third time. Basically, my beef with it kind of comes down to two shots and about eight seconds of screen time. What ruins everything for me is actually not the Asylum tag, even after learning the backstory about the first movie, which makes me like the Asylum tag even more. I'm fine with that being in there. It's pitch dark, it's twisted, but it kind of has a zesty element to it in that maybe the way, in a way, the sisters are going to be reunited. Their story is not over. Maybe for them, it's just the beginning. It's kind of a cheap way to punch out and send the kids out of the theater on a high. You know, they're going to be chattering about the crazy image of that dead demon girl scampering upside down on the ceiling, ready to raise hell. I totally get that. Viscerally, that's kind of exciting. But what makes this ending cheap and meaningless is sort of the same have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too, syrupy, sweet crap ending that people cram in to make someone else happy. And I'm talking about these two shots earlier that drive me nuts. And at the end of the day, I don't think it made anyone happy. I don't think there's any audiences who are like, well, I really love this movie because of these two shots. I don't think they did. This is what I'm talking about. When each of the human characters are protagonists that we care about, when they expire, when they die, first Doris and then the mom, we get this sort of comforting POV shot where they see their you know dead dad is there awaiting their soul on the other side. And so you get this sort of message of, oh, good, it was all true. We'll be reunited after death. We'll get to be together, presumably in something either a lot like heaven or exactly like heaven. That's what the content of the shot, with the framing and the tone and the music, everything is meant to be reassuring. You made it, kid. Welcome to the other side. At worst, it's bittersweet. So first Doris goes, and Daddy is there to welcome her. And then Mom goes, and the welcoming party is both Daddy and Doris. Except, hello, five minutes later, we see that Doris is the 
aforementioned hell beast. And I mean, I even wrote this, these notes before I realized she's the fucking antagonist of a movie set 30 years later. So wouldn't that tend to send the message strongly that her spirit is not at rest? I mean, maybe we can twist ourselves into pretzels, figuring out a read on the movie where Daddy and Doris are actually sad, enslaved souls who will never be at peace, but they're just trying to provide scant comfort for their loved ones before the reality of their damned existence has to be come to terms with. If I felt, honestly, that the movie was playing that card, like that very subtle and confusing and sophisticated card, I might go with it. But no, I actually, I just think it's more of a muddle where the philosophical idea here is we don't want to send viewers, audience members out on too much of a bummer. And if the coherence of the vision of the film has to be compromised, well, okay, fuck, this is just a PG-13 sequel to a movie based on a fucking board game. Who cares? It's just a goddamn amusement park ride. Nobody's ever going to interpret this movie or try to hold it to some standard of artistic cohesion or something. So bottom line for me, this movie is awfully good for what it is, but it is what it is. And what that is will always be more limited than with movies I love. So that's my take. I think that was a good and right pretty takedown. Thank you. I, I I enjoyed that. Um, I'm not totally sure that I agree with you. I mean, a I do, I definitely think that you you don't have as much respect for this movie as I do, which is which is okay. Despite the fact that you do have some respect for it, don't get me wrong. I, I definitely have some respect for it. The statement that it that is that is not more than the than the sum of its parts, I think, is not fair to the film and I think that it deserves a lot of credit for transcending its uh its its origin. Uh no pun intended. You know the, the only thing I'll say about the father, like I, I do like share your annoyance with it a little bit and, and in general I don't like the appearances with the father including the sequence where poor Lena has the has the flashback and like sees like the dad like sitting on the on the bed like the the haziness of is the dad actually a, a spirit that's uh, that's in the house or not i agree is really inconsistent but as we talked about earlier they also painted inconsistencies when you know henry thomas or uh or or lena is possessed by the the ghosts that possession also like comes and goes so the the voice and like the the conduit like the the spirit's ability to to transcend the boundaries of the the world of living and the dead it's not a a faucet that is always on it's it's turned on and off and so i'm willing to buy this idea that the, the father's spirit is is in there but much like the ghost that exists he doesn't have a voice and he is not able to to reach them in a way that the other voices in this home are are able to so i'm willing to accept that he is a a spirit in the house to me the moment where doris crosses over and joins them while i get that it's annoying i also think that it does serve an important role which it does show you that doris is in fact gone i i think that you're wrong that like her 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 soul i forgot exactly how you put it but her soul is not at rest I think her soul is at rest. I think her soul is is gone. I think that the whole point of it is so that we know that Doris is gone and has exited the film. And the only thing that is left is her husk. 
is her vessel for these voices. And that confirmation that she has moved on is important in terms of understanding what's actually happening at the end of the movie. And in the uh, original film, then. So what you're basically saying, and I'm not, I'm not arguing with you, I'm just asking, is that you know everything that we see of evil Doris is basically, yeah, just a mask that the evil is uh, donning. I think so. I mean, certainly at the certainly at the end. I mean, after the point where she is, you know, hanging out with dad, it's all evil. There is no Doris left. Is that fair? Like one of the issues then that I would I would raise or or want to come to terms with as a viewer is that why does the mom and dad and Doris, you know, get to sort of right off into the sunset and poor Lena has to live this tortured existence. Look, that goes back to the thing I was bringing up earlier. I don't understand why the, the malediction uh, mm-hmm. in this movie, why is it messing with, uh, with Lena's character? Like, why does everyone else kind of get a pass and, like, gets these elaborate schemes to envelop them into the fold of this demonic plan, whereas... Lena is just getting trolled by this spirit who is, is contented to just torment her as a, as a living being. I, I don't know. It's, it's a good question. That to me is the unanswered issue here. Yeah. As you said, like it, it's seducing Doris, but, but, but Lena is like just fucking with, it's just attacking her. It's just, yeah. it's just pulling the sheets off. Yeah. But at, at the weird, at, at the same time, like in the whole mythology of the two movies and sort of the Lynn Shea character, like she's, she's evil, right? I mean, like she's compromised and she's sort of, at some point she joins the other team. I guess so. Again, I, I haven't seen one, so I don't fully understand it. What I, what I glean from the Wikipedia is that, you know, she presents herself when the young kids come to her in the asylum as well, you know, I'm going to give you uh, helpful advice, but actually she's a bad guy and she's just trying to get Doris like freed somehow. Like she wants to unleash Doris and which kind of, you know, dovetails with the end of this movie, the one that we're talking about. All she has left in her life is to try to, you know, connect with Doris, whether Doris is a demon or, or not. That makes sense. I mean, that works. But yeah, she's certainly um, on the on the bad guys team, apparently, in the original film, which takes place after the movie we're talking about. They were talking about astral beings. And they need someone with an earthly connection to do things for them. And that is what she becomes. And that is the the function that she serves in what I'll call the the subsequent film, meaning the one that comes after this in terms of the storytelling, is that she convinces these kids to cut the stitches off of Doris's mouth and free the voice and and sort of free the evil that's contained in her. And so that makes a certain amount of sense within the within that that context. And, and I, it's actually an added irony that in the uh, the first movie she passes it off that the mother did that when we find out in this movie that she did it. Exactly. I feel some of that sense that Flanagan wants to give this movie a heart 
he wants to give it an emotional connection. This is not, unlike Terrified, this is not just an, a, a battering ram. That there is some sort of emotional connection underneath it. And look, that's the point of setting up all the characters and, and doing the legwork that he does. This does make an interesting juxtaposition with Terrified. In many ways, it's an opposite. They want to create characters that you care about. They want to give them arcs that you're following and that you're invested in. And they want it to land in a place that hits you emotionally while at the same time still being scary. That's a bear to try and tackle in a movie that is also a prequel to a shitty Blumhouse movie. But that's what he's trying. Yeah, that's based on a fucking board game. I think he does a phenomenal job of it. Doesn't mean it works 100%, but I can't imagine doing it any better than he does it. I just want to point out one thing, that the dad's first appearance when Lena has the the flashback to him and the doll and the the stitches in the mouth, that's what dad's ghost is there for, is to convince his eldest daughter to sew his youngest daughter's mouth shut. Right. Like, that is a dark fucking idea. Like, the presence of the dad has this touched-by-an-angel fucking vibe to it. It does. But the, but the message he's delivering is, I really need you to take that needle and sew your sister's mouth shut. Well, I mean, that raises a lot of issues. I mean, one being that that no benefit actually comes of that because the demons immediately just possess her. Yes, but Dad doesn't know that that is the inevitable. Sure, sure. Uh, well, uh, well, and also and this is directly being lifted from the very helpful YouTube comparisons of of this film and the and the first Ouija movie, but. The fact that the message was conveyed to the the older daughter, but by the time it was understood, Doris has already had a chance to whisper in her ear and and begin to uh, infect her. Right. That's an interesting point. I hadn't even thought of that. The other thing that I find truly haunting about the end of this film is Lena at the end when she's talking to the therapist, which is all by itself a I, I actually found a very unsettling scene, but that it ends on her saying, that's what mom wanted to know. That's what she found out. We're not alone. We're never alone. We'll never be alone. And so all of a sudden, that image of her mother going dying with the image of the husband and Doris sort of looking down on her, which feels sort of nice and sunny when she's doing it, feels super creepy when it's repeated as voiceover as her eldest daughter is being wheeled through a mental institution and then tries to reconnect with her sister or whatever twisted form of her sister is left through a Ouija board composed of her own blood on the floor under the carpet in her in her insane yeah. asylum cell. So I agree that there is something that feels sort of too sunny and we're trying to put a heart and an emotional spin on this. But I think that a little bit of of digging under the skin of that feels like, holy shit, this is actually a really dark movie with a lot of really dark implications. Well, it should be. 
It should yeah, be. As, I mean, as it should be. I agree. Look, like if you had just, you know, and this is probably more trouble than it's worth, but like if somehow they had said that the, the spirits appearing when you die are just like, I know this sucks. You've lost and you're going into a world of hell, but I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm here with you and I'm going to try to make it easier for you. That would have been one interpretation of this that would have worked for me, but I just would, I think it's so much cleaner. If they just dispensed with that because yeah, like in essence, this is very, very sad. Like what happens to these characters like you, you halfway through this movie you would not think looking at these three generations or you know i guess it's two generations but the mother and the two daughters like you you wouldn't think that it's going to go as badly as it does for them like you feel like it's going to work out right and they certainly I, don't deserve terrible things i wish that they hadn't shown the mother's perspective of the husband and Doris waiting for her. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. If you, like if you just cut that shot. Exactly. You just heard her dialogue and didn't get that visual. I think it would have connected more, but even though the ripple effect of that is pretty substantial, all things considered, that's a pretty slight flaw in a movie, especially given the, the constraints of where it had to land in order to connect to the the film that it was connecting to, it's just I'm, like I'm super impressed with this movie. When you when you look at what we do, when we interpret films like this, where you you take cues and you're like, what does this mean? What does this signal? What are what is the significance of this? Is this important? Like those are hugely significant beats. They are, well, and that, I think that's true. But I feel like. You overlook those things in terrified in a way that you're that you're unwilling to do in this. I feel like this is a nice girl who wants to make sweet, sweet love to you. And then she you know, she does something you don't like right at the end. Whereas Dude. terrified is a crazy chick who has crazy sex with you and you're willing to ignore all the other shit. That goes along with. I don't the, think that's fair at all. I don't think that's fair at all. I don't think that's fair at all. I, th- I think this is a movie that is honestly saying, "I want thirteen and sixteen year old girls to feel okay when they go home, like and not have too many nightmares about it." And that's what's going on, and that's why these shots are in there. And I call bullshit on that. And shots. I think Sing- singular, I call it. It's two it's shots. It's shot. two shots. No, it's each time the two family members die, they have their other family members there to smile at them like fucking force ghosts in a Star Wars movie. That's my problem with it. Uh-huh. But uh, meanwhile, but at the same time, you're you're somehow saying that because terrified doesn't have some earnest Hollywood fucking character arc, I, I you know I'm giving it too much credit. I think that's bullshit. <laughs> You can't dismiss, like, the, the development of, like, character and story as, like, Hollywood bullshit. Come on. I, I Actually, no. I when I when I look for as a horror movie, I don't look at it as, well, am I going to give this the Academy Award for Best Picture? Like, is this the best drama of the year? I mean, is this the best screenplay of the year? No. I'm, I, 
I want horror movies to be a fucking punk rock experience. I want it to fuck me up. I want it to remind me I'm alive. I want it to remind me what I'm afraid of. I don't care if it's a perfect fucking classical Hollywood narrative. That's not, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not like looking at terrified, just, you know, it, 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 it's pretty good, but I just, I wish it had a classical Hollywood structure. Like that's, that's not, that's not the, the litmus test for me. I'm sorry in this genre. John, John's been red pilled by, by terrified. <laughs> John, I guess. Here's what I'm going to say, John, this, this whole podcast, everything we're doing is a quest to find the best horror film ever made. And the best horror film ever made needs to have both. It needs to have characters. It needs to have arcs. It needs to have people that I'm invested in. And it needs to scare the shit out of me and feel like a punk rock fucking balls out. I don't know what the fuck is going on. I feel like I'm losing my mind experience. That's fair. And I have to say, this is going to, fucking kill you and I'm sorry and I'm actually sorry I'm going to vote for Ouija Origin of Evil I, I, I can't talk I, I don't have I, I'm speechless I'm speechless I'm, I'm stunned absolutely fucking stunned fair enough uh, alright well I'm voting for Terrified Rich Oh man, I feel like I got the tiebreaker last too. <laughs> are you are you debating this? Uh, I have been debating this going into this this lineup. I mean, like I said uh, earlier in our discussion, this is something where both movies really struck me as being really exceptional, very different ways. You know, they have two distinctly different approaches to genre. Both of them are certainly intending to scare you, but one of them wants to manipulate your emotions and your logic, and one of them cuts right to the bone and wants to prey on your senses. And I don't think that one of those approaches is necessarily more valid than the other, so it's a tough place to to draw a line between the two. But it's a tough call either way. But if I just got to pull the trigger and and pick one over the other, I'm going to pick Terrified. Thank you, Jesus. And you, Rich. (laughs) (laughs) And and just to justify it, like, I, Vic, I stand with you. Well, obviously not 100%. (laughs) But I I do stand by your reasoning 100%. I was really struck this time watching Ouija 2 again. Um, Like I said, I I went into this thinking, like, uh, the the Terrified was sort of, like, the sure thing. And... uh, when I watched Ouija 2 for the, the, I guess, the third or fourth time myself, I was really struck by, I'm, I'm just impressed, just really impressed with what this movie does. And, and kind of like in, in awe of its like craftsmanship. Like, and I, and I mean that in, in all seriousness for, for a PG 13 movie, a prequel to a movie that is not good based on a board game. Talk about like, overcoming your your origins i mean like this thing is is really one of a kind your origin of evil yeah all right well look i am i am not as upset about this as i was about what lies beneath uh winning out over woman in black but i want you to know i'm going to pull screen grabs of 
the the things in the background when the sheets get pulled down and when Henry Thomas is telling the background story. I'm definitely going to send them to you too. I'll probably post them on the Facebook page because I really feel like those are some of the elements that that do elevate this. It 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 does a to me it does a better job of accomplishing both of those goals in terms of the character and story development and being scary as fuck. You know, Vic. Uh, honestly, I, I, I'm horrified. And if somebody had had asked me, John, do you want to bet your life? on which of these two movies Vic would vote for, I'd be dead. I, I would be dead. <laughs> Here's my little blurb that I wrote like that for my vote, is that Terrified is a movie for grown-ups and Ouija is a movie for kids. I, I can dumb it down to something that simple. The movies are just targeting different audiences. Hardcore horror people versus scaredy cat normies and both movies deserve praise and i enjoyed both very much but one is truly my kind of movie and the other really isn't also terrified in my opinion is the kind of movie we could do three to six hours on and have a fucking blast with the sci-fi John, I don't think our podcast is capable of doing three to six hours on a movie. That doesn't sound like something. Yeah, yeah you're right. We, 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 we've never done that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm talking about, like, you know, the, the science fiction concepts that we could dig our teeth into, the jumping around in time, what's happening off screen, the backstory. Like, there's just so much to speculate on. To me, this movie is a feast, not an empty snack like the dearly departed paranormal activity three. And I'm not calling Ouija uh, origin of evil a, a snack, but I think that terrified really stands out to me as something that I really look forward to thinking about more and Ouija less so. So that's, that's why I feel passionately about this. And I honestly still Vic, I, I am shocked and horrified, shocked and horrified. <laughs> Tom, what would be more appropriate for this podcast than for me to shock and horrify you? True, true. <laughs> Honestly, obviously, if, you, if you've made it this far, chances <laughs> are you've seen at least one or both of these films. Dear God, I hope uh, so. These are both great films. I think you could. I think either one of them, and if this podcast has proven anything, we could easily break down into a much deeper discussion. Agreed. And also, just to take your musical analogy further, like I think it's I think it's silly to say that something is legit when it's punk rock versus this, which I guess the equivalent would be like pop music. They're both just different forms of expression. These are both done very well, just in different okay. manners of tone. Okay, I'll give you that, Vic. This is not pop music. This is Van Morrison. Versus punk rock, Ooh. punk rock, something, something. I don't. Know, I'm just saying something, something a little more period appropriate. You know, mm-hmm. this is this isn't Britney Spears. This is there's a lot more depth to this, and I think it speaks to that that we that we have. I think all of us uncovered layers as we've watched it repeatedly, which is just not something that's true of most horror films. I think there are definitely layers to Terrified, and I am looking forward to watching it. I probably will get high next time to see what uh, <laughs> what what new elements that brings out of it. 
but it, 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 this is not again. My heart is not broken. This is a. Th- these are two exceptional movies. I'm really just delighted at how much this movie was elevated by the repeat viewings and and by the analysis that we've done here. And I'm frankly really excited to to look at Oculus again because I think that's another one that is a really strong contender yeah. as a dark horse candidate to to really move forward in this competition. Well, I always liked Oculus better personally. I mean, I like this movie a lot, but I think Oculus is better. You know, imagining if Rich had voted for Ouija and Terrified had been eliminated here, like I, I can tell you that my reaction would have probably been good, good, good radio. <laughs> like I, I would have lost my shit. So uh, it's almost sad that you guys didn't coax that out of me. Yeah, it was it was almost worth it to me. <laughs> To, yeah. to go to that side just to see what happened. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations on a job fucked up, buddy. <laughs> Compared to Tale of Two Sisters losing, this would have been like I just my mind would have been blown. My my righteous indignation would have been as powerful as a dragon's fire. Like I don't, I don't know what would happen, but it would have been intense. So Rich, can we can we agree now to vote out <laughs> session nine in the next round, just to oh see what God. happens? You know, I'm not even sure that 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 would be more upsetting to me. I mean, probably, but definitely terrified. And session nine are my babies, so bring it, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you, guys, and let's move on to our final matchup of the Sinister 16 next time. I'm John Evans for Rich Eckersley and Vic Wheat. Adios! Good night, everybody. Adame. <laughs>